You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Jaws edition. Jaws. I've got them. I'm using them right now. I'm Nathan, your humble and obedient host. I'll tell you who else has Jaws. Benjamin Seltzer. Got them right here. Got them right there. Yep. yep. In your skull. Here they are. Yep. How's it going today, Ben? It's good, Nathan. How are you? I'm excited to talk about 1975's Jaws. Yeah. Decided to talk about a good movie. Yeah. Just, yeah, I'm excited. Hey, speaking of excitement, I'll tell you what else I would be excited is to hear you introduce the man de resistance. (laughs) Famed ocean explorer, Jacob Menzel, pastor who's a master of cinema. Hey, what's up? Now, guys, I feel like we have to do this because surely our listeners are already trying to figure out which one of us is Brody, which one of us is Quint, and which one of us is Hooper. Oh, come on. We already know the answers to that. (laughs) Uh, All right. If they're so obvious, what are they? You're Quint. Uh, I do because I'm like fingernails on a chalkboard. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I get to be Hooper. <laughs> I actually love Hooper. He's the best. So yeah, it's all right. Hey, that's right. And, he's, he's, yeah. and I'm just a stiff <laughs> sheriff who's afraid of You're water. You're the avatar for the everyman. <laughs> You're the avatar for the everyman. Yep. I'm the kooky guy that thinks he's cool and then gets eaten. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, I you told a great story. Yeah, I did tell a great story. Man. And Ben's the... Twerp. The twerpy hippie. <laughs> <laughs> Just a really smart twerp. Martin, I'm not saying it's not the shark. It's he's, he's that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's probably the shark. <laughs> uh, I don't do a good Dreyfus. I mean, I don't do a lot of impressions, but uh, I feel like maybe I could do a Dreyfus if I tried. I feel like you probably could. I, I, I feel like... Yeah. <sighs> Richard Dreyfus's best performance? Least annoying character maybe ever? Yeah, certainly least annoying. I mean, he's awesome. He's really fun. I mean, I watched this movie... By myself in two parts and my wife was in and out and around doing things and towards the end of the second part she was just like i really like richard dreyfus's character in this movie huh just threw it out there what a fascinating statement for a wife to make i don't think my wife made that statement i don't know whether she thought it or not That's... my wife definitely did she did okay yeah, she she loves his performance in this movie all right i didn't know everybody was such a big hooper fan hoophead I remember my Hooper's mom. Real, my mom was the same. Yeah. yeah, he's got some real fans out there. Of maybe I shouldn't ask this, but of the ladies specifically, like is he? Is he? I think he's a just, certain kind of attractive. I think he's just sort of uh, cute, charming, boyish, fun. I think it. I think he I brings. Think he brings a nice, a little bit more maternal than they are. Yeah. Otherwise. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. If if you're gonna like, oh, I hope he doesn't get eaten by a shark. Yeah. If one of them yeah. is like, this Quinn's kind of scary and vulgar, and Brody's just what I don't know. I I like Brody a lot. I like all these guys. That's one of the yeah. keys to this movie. And man, uh, we should say what we're doing. So we're gonna do this movie, and then in a couple of weeks we're gonna do Jurassic Park. So we're gonna track the two J named Spielberg. Blockbuster masterpieces. Blockbuster masterpieces. And they'll be really interesting. I was already, I already watched Jurassic Park just because we had a free evening. And the way that these movies compare is really interesting. And might make you not like Jurassic Park enough if, or as much if you think too hard about it. Just for example, the opening sequence of Jaws is a magnificent piece of storytelling. Problematic in some ways uh, based on just what's shown visually, as I'm sure we'll talk about. But uh, in terms of the, the iconography and the mythology of it, really wonderful. And then the opening of Jurassic Park, it's like, 
a random guy got sucked into a a raptor cage or something. It's just like nothing like the 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 archetypal power of what happens at the opening of Jaws. I don't that'd be my argument anyway. But we've got many But you don't need to set it up. Yeah, when you have dinosaurs, you don't need to do anything include have, including having compelling characters or anything like that. You just it's dinosaurs. <laughs> um Jurassic Park rules. I'm I'm not I'm not a Jurassic Park hater. Uh, somebody characterized this podcast recently. A friend that, that listens to it and enjoys it said, this is the podcast. And I quote, because I will pull it up on Twitter. I, our, our, our Warhorn Media Twitter account referenced our Dune review. And this good friend, I'll just say it was David, said, we're more cultured than you. We hate what you love. You're welcome. Smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't love stupid things, David. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Maybe you should be more cultured, like us. <laughs> oh man, I think Dune is the most divisive thing we've ever done. Not, no way. Not 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 across Warhorn Media, but on the movie show. No, I don't believe it. Can you name something more? No. We'll talk about Jaws in a minute, but can you name like a, a thing that we've that everybody loved that we didn't like more than Dune? No. Everybody really liked Dune. They just they Kate, just... so they should they should watch Jaws and then go back and watch Dune. They should listen to this podcast and go watch Jaws and then go watch Dune and then listen to our review of Dune again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go for a swim in, <laughs> in the world of Jaws. The water is fine. So what were we talking about? So so all right, we've established which one of us is which in terms of the characters. That's important. So I guess your wife is. Ellen Brody, and uh, we won't assign Mrs. Kittner and little Kittner boy and all that stuff. But yeah, Jaws. Uh, okay, sorry. I remember what I was doing. I was saying what we're doing. So we're going to do Jaws and Jurassic Park, arguably the two linchpins of blockbuster filmmaking and where it's come from and where it's going. Jaws kind of created blockbuster, the summer blockbuster filmmaking, as we'll talk about. And then Jurassic Park kind of redefined it and ushered in cgi and i don't know i like jurassic park i'm not going to be the guy that hates everything that everybody likes but i think jurassic park may well be responsible for a lot of dumb things it might kind of be the beginning of the end of i don't know i don't know we'll talk about it it's interesting the amount of work that goes into the characters in jaws versus jurassic park for example it's just it's, 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 I think it's going to be a really interesting contrast. And, and maybe Jurassic Park will shine in some of that contrast, too. I'm not saying it's all going to be. Jaws is great and Jurassic Park is dumb. Old things are good. Bad, new things are bad. Although Jurassic Park is now, like, what, 30 years old or something yeah. like that. Anyway, that's the conceit. closer to 50. Jurassic, Jurassic Park? Park? Oh, I'm sorry. Jaws. Yeah. Yeah, Jaws is, wow, is Jaws actually 50 years old now? It's 75. came out 75. So it'll be clo- it's close. Yeah. And it's 47 or whatever. That's incredible. Wow. Man, still feels, I mean, it definitely feels like a period piece. It feels like a 70s period piece, but it does not feel old. Mm-mm. All right, we're going to tear into this beast. We're going to say, smile, you son of a gun, and, and bring this shark down in terms of great podcast conversation. But uh, why don't we talk about our Jaws baggage first? Uh, what, how did you guys first experience this movie? Do you like it? Is it? Oh, I'm sorry. I keep folks. My coffee just is not doing its work today. Jaws, Jurassic Park. And then I think we will talk about Jurassic Park Dominion as well. Not because we think it's going to be any good, but because it'll be an interesting Jurassic world. Sorry. Jurassic World Dominion. I always do that. But it's going to be kind of three linchpins in, in 
blockbuster filmmaking. The dawn of blockbuster filmmaking, we'll, we'll call Jurassic Park the pinnacle of, <laughs> of blockbuster filmmaking. And then the dark <laughs> night of where we're at today. Yeah, where we're at today, <laughs> the, the sad demise of blockbuster filmmaking will be Jurassic Park, Jurassic World Dominion, or whatever. But let's talk about the, what floatsome and jetsome we bring to this sailor's tale, Ben. Yeah. Uh, what what's what's your Jaws history, my friend? I saw it as a kid. I don't remember how young. I just remember watching it pretty early and seeing it TV edited version. Mm-hmm. That didn't have maybe, not that there's a ton of gore in Jaws actually, but it didn't have certain things, I guess. It's always surprising to me, especially for, it's one of those old PG movies before the PG-13 where certain things happened and I'm, I'm always shocked every time I watch it, especially by that leg, the, mm-hmm. the, the fourth victim, I think. Yep. Well, and the Kittner boy. There's just a geyser of blood when, yeah, that's, when the that's Kittner boy. Yeah, that's probably the most horrifying actually. Yeah, it's, it certainly tells the most horrifying story, but then just to see that leg. Yeah. float and the story behind that is that the, this movie got an r rating and then spielberg went and appealed it and, and and they basically said a we'll cut a couple frames out of that leg so the leg used to kind of bounce on the ground and you spent some time with it but we we cut down the leg no no pun intended and then spielberg just said there's no repeatable behavior in this it's a shark this is not the same thing as like uh not that halloween had been made at this point but as a slasher film or as a, like, no kid is going to go swim around eating people. This is a relatively nice adventure movie in terms of mm-hmm. the story it's telling. And I don't know whether that's a good argument or not, but the ratings board bought it and gave the sucker a PG. Of course, they did not have the PG-13 rating. Obviously, that would be the sweet spot. And but Spielberg would give us that later. So, you, you saw the TV version, slightly edited? Uh, yeah, I just remember seeing this movie a lot of times and always really liking it as a kid. For wh- whatever reason, it didn't, it didn't, like, bother me. I don't like horror. Even as a kid, I was, would be very sensitive to even seeing movie covers of horror stuff would, that would s- bother me and give me nightmares. But I don't remember Jaws ever doing that. Although, it, it has given, given me a number of... I, and I, I think I would trace this back to Jaws, like, even today have uncomfortable dreams about water Mm -hmm. where you're in the water and you really don't want to be and you have a feeling of anxiety and dread because you can't see in the water and you know there's bad things there so i've had a lot of dreams like that probably since i was a little kid wow and i would trace that to jaws but i i've never had a dream of being pursued by a shark Mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting it's more like just a dread of what's in the water isn't like in any horror film (laughs) what's scary is the unknown yeah Yeah, that's right that's right. right. I, Although, even and as that a, is what's more scary about the ocean. Yeah. Because you actually don't know. That's and right. The, and the, 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 there's still like, when you see people talk about how much of the ocean remains unexplored. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's amazing. It, it's amazing. We know, in some ways, we know more about the moon than we know about the bottom of <laughs> the Mariana Trench. And so what could be lurking down there in the deeps that would never bother to come up? Or mm-hmm. yep. As yet undiscovered. Yeah. I, and that makes me think. I, I mean, and it's I, being terrestrial. Yeah. It just, it's one of the few places where we can still have some kind of, of mystery. Well, that's one of the, so, so. The romance of the mystery. One of the reasons we're doing this is because over on the Bookening, our literature podcast, we're doing Moby Dick, which I think we're going to say is the great American novel. It's just a fantastic book. Yeah. And one of the things that that book puts you in touch with, because Ishmael is a very poetic narrator, is how much a sailor going over the sea 
is just hovering over an abyss. It's yeah. a very abyssal <laughs> story to use a pretentious word. It's it's like I'm just traveling under over this. We we think of airplanes doing this, but actually every time a ship sets to sea, it, it's hovering over this giant abyss. And the way Ishmael describes it, it's an abyss full of primordial mm-hmm. monsters and stuff that we all take for granted. But yeah, well, we take it for granted because we've named it, right? right? Like we've categorized it and we've used Latin words mm-hmm. and we think that means that we've understood it. Mm-hmm. And and then we look down our noses at people who talk about in history about sea monsters and Leviathan. Right. It's like, no, if you were there, these are these are sea monsters. Right. What other word is there for a, a great white shark or a sperm whale? Mm-hmm. Than a sea monster, you know, it's just they're huge, they're amazing, mm-hmm. it's incredible. And just because we have Planet Earth videos and some names for them, doesn't make them any less wild and mm-hmm. crazy. Mm-hmm. And even the ones that we say are gentle and sweet, they still have a danger just in their bearing and size. And right. Well, and that's what a movie like Jaws, that's that's why it has a kind of primal power. It is actually putting us in touch with the fact that no matter how much we civilize the world, there are still these monsters. And that's what any horror movie does. I think the reason Jaws doesn't bother Ben is because something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is putting us with, in touch with as much as we civilize America, there's still regions where people are so depraved that they want to chop us up and eat us with chainsaws, which is a very unpleasant thing to be put in touch with. The idea that there's just uncivilized places where animals might be, where there's where there's a kind of God-ordained monster, it is a nicer kind of fear somehow, I think, even <laughs> though it is, it is, it is in fact fearsome. It is. It well, does, it's it, much more in that sense connected to the fear of God. Right. It is. I think it's more connected to the fear of God than it is to the fear of uh, man or the fear of depravity, actually. It's, it's, yeah. Uh, Jaws is not evil per se he's just an instrument of fate or an inf- I mean, I'm, I'm being very pseudo pop profound here but jaws just does what jaws does he's he's an eating machine he's as, an eating uh, machine yes like. yeah i mean so i wouldn't blame everything on on the movie i mean i think i've been in the ocean the ocean is a big and wild place mm-hmm. kind of scary on its own but certainly there was some kind of feedback effect with jaws mm-hmm. and i remember my bit we'll talk about this later but i'm bringing it up now because this is part of my memories of jaws is my mom saying to me because my mom really liked the movie too is her saying to me well when i saw jaws it ruined the ocean for me and i've never gone swimming again in the ocean since Mm -hmm. and i think actually a lot of people might say something like that and i think i think that's too bad i remember once a long time ago talking with a friend and being like well maybe maybe he never should have made jaws because it had a destructive effect Mm -hmm. for a lot of people and, and you you could say that nineteen year old Ben was dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fine, but but I think it's it's worth talking about the potential destructive effect. <laughs> yeah, well, of, of a movie like this. I mean, Hitchcock well, there got, was a, If I recall correctly, there was a huge, like a lot of little beach towns like Amity really suffered and were angry about the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, the fact is that Benchley, Peter Benchley, who wrote the novel, spent his life. I mean, he didn't want to come out and just say, I apologize for Jaws because he, you know, had made his fortune, but he spent his life trying to convince people that actually great whites didn't need to be hunted down and destroyed, that it was a noble animal in some mm-hmm. ways that like, 
he spent his life kind of apologizing for it and 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 feeling bad about the narrative that it created. Yeah, about I'm, sharks and about right, right, and, and it it created a hunting boom mm-hmm. of sharks, which I don't know from what I from what I know, it's bad. I don't know a lot about what's actually happened, but there's a 2016 article here in the Odyssey online that says population of many shark species all around the U.S. has declined 50 to 90 percent since the release of Jaws in 1975. Hmm. So, even if it's the lowest number, I don't know what many shark species means. I don't know how many yeah, that is. This article is very unspecific. Don't know much, how much correlation equals causation there. Yep. Don't know. But don't know. It's certainly interesting. Yep. Jake, what's your Jaws history? Jaws was like a lot of movies that fit a certain profile just means was not part of my life wasn't in my house my family stayed away from horror and especially anything connected with gore <laughs> so i just this is a, a lot of movies in that realm that i never really like yeah i've seen like the leg scene and things like that that i caught here and there but uh, <laughs> it wasn't until I, I was in adulthood that i sat down and actually watched it as a movie. So my experience of Jaws, I think the first time I would have watched it would have been 10 or 12 years ago or Mm -hmm. something like that. So I can't say for sure when it would have been, but so yeah, and might've just been like, here's a Spielberg movie that is like a touchstone that I've never seen for some reason. So yeah, that's interesting. My experience is somewhat similar just in the sense that I'm not sure I ever had like a pure just I'm just watching this because somebody turned it on and I'm just having the full Jaws experience that people would have had type experience. I approached it as an artifact that I'd heard about as something that parents talked about, like I didn't swim for a year. Kind of, I, I would put it in the same category, not not in terms of its reputation as, as sort of evil, but just in terms of something that people always reference of a certain generation with The Exorcist. Uh, the Exorcist is a movie that you, you talk to anyone who's my mom's age and they'll say they they saw it. And it doesn't matter how sort of not the kind of person that would see The Exorcist they are. Most people just saw that movie because it was, it was big at the time. And they'll say, I saw it. And then they'll say, like, I didn't, I slept with the lights on for a year or something like that. And Jaws is the same thing. I saw it and I didn't go swimming or I still don't swim. Like Ben's mom is just so, mm-hmm. so typical. Like... And so I knew it, I knew Jaws as having that kind of reputation. And then I kind of came to it backwards. I discovered Star Wars just because we had the VHSs. And then I discovered Raiders of the Lost Ark and all the Spielberg stuff. And I just loved all that stuff. And I was kind of becoming a film nerd. And I had exhausted most Spielberg and watched Kubrick and just just following the same path that every dorky little film kid followed in those days. And Somehow I'd never seen Jaws, and so I was like, well, I have to see this. This is like the Spielberg masterpiece, the great blockbuster suspense action thing that I've never seen. And I was pretty disappointed with it, actually, watching it at 12 or 13, because I think I was expecting it to give me that same high that an Indiana Jones movie did or something like that. And it felt relatively sedate compared to that. Like you were just, I was surprised by how much time you actually spent on the land how little there was in terms of action, you know, I mean, which is totally unfair. I mean, Jaws is a suspense classic and an action classic. It's just not Indiana Jones. I mean, that's the only thing that it falls short of is it's not as fast paced as the later Lucas and Spielberg type stuff. And I was expecting it to be. 
And so I was kind of just, I liked it. And I think once it got to the end, I was pretty pumped for the final confrontation and everything. Mm -hmm. Once Jaws (laughs) decides to just ram that boat for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) I, I love how much this movie actually doesn't make any sense, but it's beautiful. I'm not being a snob. I'm saying it's it's beautiful how much they create this monster in your mind so that by the time he just decides to tear that boat apart, <laughs> you accept it <laughs> without thinking about it. But anyway, I I I watched this movie, didn't really get it. And then I came back to it a little bit later and I, I think having put my expectations behind me was able to have a more appropriate response. Uh, and I've watched it several times since and it's just a great classic movie. Weirdly, Raiders of the Lost Ark was kind of actually like that for me too, because I saw Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade first. And as a little kid, like that movie is so cool and so Uh funny and so Mm -hmm. adventure packed and his dad is so charming and everything. It was just like, that blew my mind. And then Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of felt more serious and you didn't have Sean Connery being cute and it was just less kid friendly. And so I didn't really, I mean, I got it. It was exciting and stuff, but I had to go back to it a couple times to really get it. And so I love both. I love Jaws and I love Raiders of the Lost Ark, but they both actually took me probably, it was probably like viewing number two or number three where I really locked in. And and it's weird because I can watch it now and actually have feelings of suspense and stuff like that. But I have a, a weird memory of being a snobby kid who somehow didn't. Well, the jump scare underwater got me this time. The head. The head. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That got yeah. me. I definitely totally. I you, I had forgotten what exactly was going to happen, mm-hmm. but you knew a jump scare scare was coming, and it still got me, and I laughed at myself. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Oh yeah," but that's just like that's just good filmmaking. Yeah. So the story I watched the Jaws documentary on the on the Blu-ray or whatever, and the story behind that one is that it it didn't really work that well. But when Jaws came out of the water, the famous, you're going to need a bigger boat, that, that jump scare when he's throwing the chum, the audience jumped so far and it was so magical. And Spielberg was just like, yes. And then he's like, he gets greedy. He's like, I want another one of those. So he spent something like $5,000 of his own money to go and refilm the, the head bobbing out. And that was a, a pit, like the one big pickup they did afterwards. And he shot it four or five different ways with different timings. One time he swims up and the head's already there. One time he swims up, there's a long beat. And then I think the one they finally used is he comes and then, and he just showed it to people until they got the right one. But the, fun, the interesting thing about that story is Spielberg said, I put that in and, we, and it was a terrific jump scare and it's the jump scare in the movie. But then nobody jumped for the shark. The shark. Yeah. And, and, and he thought, what happened? And then he realized, oh, they didn't trust me anymore. Like, like once I've, I burned their trust on the first one, they, they never quite relaxed enough to, yeah. to be willing to. So he said it was, it was a really good lesson huh. in filmmaking. And I've noticed that a lot in suspense and horror movies, where you place your big jump or your big scary moment or your big gory moment or whatever is so important because you don't get two chances to have that kind of impact. The audience always deflates a little bit after the first one or just steals themselves. It's just kind of like, okay, I know how far you're willing to go. I know what you're going to show me now. I'm, I can calibrate, but as long as you're not calibrated, you can, you're off balance and you feel a lot more suspense. Anyway, so that's my baggage. And let's talk some much needed context 
about Jaws. You guys ready for the story of Jaws? Yes. The story of how Steven Spielberg changed Hollywood and created modern entertainment and basically changed the entire narrative of why stories that are told to us are the way they are and burned old Hollywood to the ground and created your childhood and all that kind of stuff. You guys ready for that story? So ready. Okay. Yeah. Jake, I want you to play the part of old Hollywood. Okay, I'm old Hollywood. And Ben, I want you to play the part of... Trying to make some pictures. Trying to make some pictures here. Yeah, you got to talk like that. (laughs) (laughs) You got to smoke a cigar. Ben, I want you to play the part of... So Jake is the studio system. Yeah. And Ben, you are the poor little theater chain. (laughs) All right. (laughs) (laughs) Now listen, I've got uh, some contracts. You're going to do what I tell you to do. You're going to show what I show. I tell you to show what I tell you to show. Uncle. All right. That's just the way it's going to be. Now for this, th- we're, we're going up to 19. 19- this, this is all happening before 1948. Okay. So you're got go- it right so far. Uh, yeah, exactly. So Thanks. you're going to do two things to Ben, Jake. You're yeah. going to, and we're going to enact this as an awesome little play. Yeah. You're, you're going to get him to sign a contract for what's called block booking, which we've talked about before. Come here. Let me see your hand. I uh, like my hand. Ow. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> Yeah, stop it. Sign the contract. Uh, okay. For this thing called block booking. Sure, whatever you say. And block booking is Jake's basically like so so be like, you wanna see, show my A picture, Casablanca? You wanna show my A picture Casablanca, you gotta show my double Z picture. <coughs> Frank goes to Africa and fights babes. I'll do it. Now, <laughs> this is a little silly because if you have a chance to show Frank goes to Africa and fights babes, I think obviously <laughs> take it. <laughs> you, 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 you take it. But this is exactly this is where the term B movie comes from. Basically, studios would do what Evil Jake just did, which is strong arm theater chains into signing contracts where if they wanted to show the big movie that everybody wanted to see, then they also had to sign up for an entire season of movies that included a bunch of schlocky B movies and stuff that the studio didn't put any money into. The studios also owned the theater chain, so maybe like own Ben real quick. I already do. Yeah. No. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Ben, though, you're going to rise up. You're going to rise up. Uh, I've been thinking lately, I'm done with you forever. Oh, yeah? Well, you can't show any of my movies then. Oh, no. So good luck being a theater chain that uh, doesn't have any of my movies. I'll win somehow. All right, you'll win because I'm going to play the character of the United States government. Hello, I'm the United States government. Or your studio trying to... No, I'm going to crush you. In your, I'm going to bring an anti-monopoly suit against you in 1948. Antitrust suit. Antitrust suit, yeah. In, uh, it's it's going to be called the United States versus Paramount Pictures. It's a very important case. It ends block booking, and it ends the ownership of theater chains by film studios. So Jake's power was crushed. Oh, no. I uh-huh. guess my power will just reside in the fact that I have to make great movies, and I have access to all the stars, and... Yeah, you still have got lots of power. But yeah. here's the other thing that's diminishing. And your... I guess I have to just go back door to, in order to put all the politicians in my pocket now and spend the next 50 or 70 years doing that instead. Right, which eventually you will be very successful at. But you're going to flail for a good 20 to 30 years. And the, the other big reason you're going to flail is because TV is going to come. 
and TV is going to be like, hey, I'm TV. I don't know why everything has to be personified today, but hey, I'm TV. You can watch me at your home. You don't have to go see Jake's movies at the theaters. You can just watch TV anytime you want. Uh, One day the internet's going to come and crush you, TV, and Mm. then I will introduce my streaming service that may or may not. Basically do block booking. Do block booking. But until uh, that time... Curse you, television. All right, so then Jake, the evil studio system, he responds by, okay, I've, I can't black book. I, can't, I don't own che- theater chains. I have to actually make movies that people want to see. TV is diminishing my power. Nobody wants to go to the theater. It's not like the dominant form of entertainment that it was in the earliest, early part of the 20th century. So through the late 40s, into the 50s, into the 60s, and even into the 70s, Jake is trying to lure people Back to the theater. And how is he doing it? Well, he's doing it with a widescreen, with CinemaScope, with 3D, with any little gimmick to make it stereo sound. Can we do smell-o-vision? Smell-o-vision. Yeah, like all those silly gimmicks that you hear about happened during the 1950s because they would do anything to get people into the theater. And a lot of the epic films that, that we kind of grew up with, like that come before Spielberg, things like Ben-Hur or The Sound of Music, like, like the kind of the whole genre of old, boring, epic movies that are pretty cool comes from that era because it's like, what's the biggest, you got to go see the chariot race, the Ben-Hur chariot race. On the big screen. Sound of, Sound of Music, I wanted to say Sound of Sanity. Sound of Music is actually the big success of that time period. It's released in 1960 and they take this relatively simple stage play and they blow it up into this epic attraction that you have to come see there's nothing about that story that demands maria go running over the most beautiful mountain scenery but there's a helicopter mm-hmm. shot of the swiss alps right exactly mm-hmm. and so sound of music is we're going to take a simple story that we could probably do a two-hour movie about and we're going to make a three-hour epic saga that you just have to take your family to see and Hollywood keeps trying in the 50s and the 60s to do things like that. Some of them are huge successes like Sound of Music, but everybody's chasing that and it's not really working, especially by the late 60s and into the early 70s. It's really failing. There's movies like Paint Your Wagon, the musical with Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin, (laughs) those two great musical talents. There's just a lot of Torah, Torah, Torah is a famous disaster. Movies that you've probably seen like the VHS, at least if you grew up with like us and the blockbuster generation, we're sort of familiar with these titles, I think. Uh, And and some of them are like dad movies that... Yeah, Torah, Torah, Torah is a huge dad movie. Right. Every, I don't know, what is it? Memorial Day movie? Right. So the funny thing about that is that Hollywood in the 60s and 70s, they're basically trying to chase your dad not that your dad is exactly like this, but they're trying to chase the world's dad because what they're used to is a middle-aged audience. Like that's who went to the movies. I mean, everybody went to the movies, but the, the, the sort of people that we make movies for are a middle-aged audience that's blue collar, that has a high school education. That's, that's like the model in the, 30, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And then as TV comes in, like as all the stuff happens, there's another shift in the culture where the people with expendable cash that want to see movies are suddenly people in their 20s and 30s with college education. So by the mid-1970s, when Jaws hits, uh, 76% of all moviegoers were under 30, and 64% of them had gone to college. And that means they wanted to see a different kind of movie. They wanted to see, like, this, this this is the rise of, I think, like some of our staff picks. This is the rise of Japanese cinema being popular in America. Things like Yojimbo. This is the rise of the spaghetti western. This is the rise of the French new wave. This is the rise of 
all this art house stuff, everything that's on the Criterion collection now hits in the 60s and 70s while this younger generation is looking for something. They're hungry for a different kind of storytelling, a more sophisticated kind of storytelling. They also really want to see some provocative content. They want to see nudity. And a lot of those movies have naked ladies in them. And and so the audience is just really, really shifting. And then it really shifts in 1968 when the new ratings code comes in. So it used to be you kind of had to make movies for everybody because they were designed for everybody. But in 1968, suddenly we have the MPAA ratings code. So we have a G and a PG and an R, which means you can make a movie that's just not intended for kids and has more provocative adult content. So all this stuff is happening through the 60s. The studio, you know, Jake, the evil studio, he's flailing. He's flailing. Flail for me, Jake. Ah. Yeah, he's flailing. <laughs> and Wait, it's not good for me either. Oh, no. <laughs> exactly. It's not good for, for Ben either. So studios are desperate. They don't know what to do. They shouldn't have done it, man. <laughs> they, they have this, this youth, this hungry youth market, and they're like, what do we do? And so what they do is, they take risks like they, they just they, they don't have a clear idea. And, and so they're, they're just is there is there some young guy that has like a cool vision for something that wants to do something violent or something provocative or something kind of interesting? We'll do it. And so you get titles like Easy Rider and The Godfather and stuff. But basically, there's a generation of filmmakers that arise. We talked a little bit about them before. They're called the movie brats. And these are bearded hippie dudes who all except for one of them went to film school they all grew up with movies and tv they're kind of the first generation that's the guys that created movies like casablanca like they were born in the 1900s they didn't know what movies were when they were little kids but they they learned this craft the first real generation to arise who's like just grown up seeped in it and is reacting to it and is recalibrating and recontextualizing it are these guys and so these are all the guys that are kind of considered the great godfathers of cinema now. It's Francis Ford Coppola, it's George Lucas, it's Paul Schrader, it's Brian De Palma, it's John Milius, and it's Steven Spielberg. And the only one of those guys who didn't go to film school because he couldn't get in was... Spielberg. Spielberg, exactly. But Spielberg is a savant who breathes cinema. And we'll talk to him. And talk about him in a we'll second. Talk to him. Yeah, we'll talk to him. I've got Steven Spielberg Surprise. here. Surprise. <laughs> here I am. I'm Steven Spielberg. Hey, folks. Steven. I understand you're good at cinema. <laughs> Very good. The best, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I sound like Woody Allen, but that's just how I sound. <laughs> Wait, is, that's how Woody Allen sounds? <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to my comedy show. I'm, I sound more like Woody Allen when I do it, actually. Uh, but I don't know that. Well, Matt Rosebloom. <laughs> yeah. Well, Matt Rosebloom's definitely in influenced by Woody Allen. So Francis Ford Coppola makes The Godfather, which is a very provocative movie in 1973, I believe. Uh, George Lucas makes a little film called Star Wars. I don't know if you guys have heard this, have heard of this a little indie movie did pretty the well. Star, the, Star the Star Wars. Wars yeah. But here's the ironic part. The, there's this whole generation that's looking for provocative kind of adult, interesting content. And so Hollywood's like, all right, let's hire some, some hippies to give it to him, and then the hippies end up unlocking the actual formula for giving people schlock and spectacle, and the two hippies that really last. I mean, Scorsese's kept making movies, but he hasn't had the same kind of impact on the culture as Spielberg and Lucas, who, who basically figured out how, 
the reason those guys got a chance is because we were looking for something new, something fresh, something different. But what those guys ended up doing was figuring out how to do Sound of Music and Ben-Hur and things like that for a new generation, how to actually give people the spectacle that they would pay for. And that is really the, the story of Jaws. Jaws is the movie that changed everything that finally made Jake, Mr. Hollywood, stop flailing and figure out, oh, I'm just- I don't have to flail anymore. No. I just need to adapt this formula and take it down to its bare bones so that I spend as little money as possible and make as much as possible. Man, I'm waiting for somebody to invent computer graphics, illustration Mm -hmm. thingies that I can use. And maybe there'll be some guy like Michael Bay Mm -hmm. who I can just pay to spend nothing and churn out hits. Yep, that's the formula. And we'll talk about everything that Jaws created. But let's talk about Steven Spielberg. We've got him in the room here right now. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And Mr. Spielberg, do you mind if I I tell your story real quick? Please, go ahead. (laughs) Steven Spielberg is the the chosen one. He needs an appropriately mythic backstory. And and it needs to be an all-American story of pluck and fighting your way up through weird circumstances. And... He's got it. He also needs a weird, powerful origin story, preferably with some daddy issues. And so he's got those too. Arnold Spielberg, his dad, member of the greatest generation, invented a revolutionary computer process. He did not invent the computer language basic, but he invented the machine that allowed them to invent basic. Like he built the foundation that the next group of guys would come along and build personal computing on. So Spielberg's dad is an important figure in home computing, in computers, in all that stuff. He's an American man. He's a hard worker. He's busy inventing personal computing. So he's away from the family all the time to give Steven a lot of daddy issues, which may or may not figure into all of his movies. I don't know. We'll talk about it. But Steven's mom is his best friend, and she's not really a caregiver. She's more of a Peter Pan. I feel like you're being sardonic here. <laughs> Who, me? Yeah. No, I'm just telling the folksy, all-American story. I don't trust it somehow. S- Steven Spielberg. Uh, your mother, Mr. Spielberg, felt sorry for a monkey and brought it home one day, <laughs> bought it from, like, a monkey vendor. That's right. <laughs> so she was a little bit of a bohemian. Don't laugh at my mother. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of so so... You're growing up in suburba, suburbia. You're living suburba. That's suburbia. what we called it back then. You're growing up. It was up. a strange world. <laughs> you're, you're growing up in suburba, and you're, you've got this bohemian mother, this hardworking father who's away all the time. And so, what do you do, Mr. Spielberg? You watch TV, don't right. you? And you're nervous yeah. and you're lonely, and you make home movies with your Super 8 camera. <clears throat> That's right. <laughs> And your parents' marriage begins to fracture, and your mom went from this joyous Peter Pan sprightly figure to sad. She would sob by the piano, and she'd call you over, and she'd say things like, I'm so sad, Stephen. I'm so lonely. And you would kind of have to be her emotional support. You remember this? Very well, yes. (laughs) And when you turn 20, your mom leaves your dad for your dad his best friend. Duh, yep. <laughs> and <laughs> duh, yeah. <laughs> duh, duh, yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of com- <laughs> crosstalk on that one, huh, Steve? <laughs> so, 
And your dad famously tells the kids that he divorced her, that he left her. He takes the bullet. He thinks it's more important for you to have a good relationship with your mother. And so he falls on the sword and makes himself the bad guy on purpose, very intentionally. And for years, as an adult, you believe that your dad left your mom, even though the opposite is true. Your mom committed adultery and left with your dad's best friend. And so watching the career, there, won't say anything else about that, but watching the career of Spielberg, you can really track him processing his daddy issues. Somewhere in the late 90s or in the late 80s, he begins to have more sympathy for his dad. You get pictures, you get pictures. I'm talking like one of those guys now. You get pictures like Last Crusade, where the dad is still kind of stern and aloof, but they're going to figure it out. And then suddenly the real pivot point is Schindler's List and Jurassic Park when suddenly we're telling stories about father figures and from the perspective of a father and Sam Neill and Jurassic Park, of course, doesn't love the kids, but by the end, he, he really he does. He does for some reason. And so you can really just watch Spielberg track his own ideas of fatherhood. And it's one of the things that, that is really resonant about his entire career. So but the more fun part of, of Steven Spielberg's career is the kind of mythic story of him becoming a director because he couldn't get into film school, but his family at a certain point lived close to Universal Studios and he would take the tour and he would sneak off of the bus and he would go and he would talk to tradespeople and kind of just insinuate himself in the studio. There are stories, perhaps apocryphal, but Steven is very cagey and Steven Spielberg, like any good Direct, like any good populist producer, person who talks to the press is, you know, he knows how to spin a good yarn. He, he understands the power of his own mythology. Yeah. Self-mythologizing is part of the art. Exactly, exactly. Part of the job. And so he doesn't... No comment. <laughs> and so he doesn't say that he didn't do this. He also doesn't say he did do this. Maybe you just want to clear it, clear this up for us, uh, Mr. Spielberg. No, I don't. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I'll just... Uh, so, did you in fact uh, find an empty office and just decide that it was your just claim that it was your office? Could be. <laughs> Could be. He makes an independent film called Anybody? The Duel? No. Oh. I forget. We've done this before, but I don't remember. Amblin. Amblin, 26 minutes oh, long. That's right. Led to a contract with Universal after Sid Scheinberg, the vice president of Universal, saw the film. Spielberg was signed to a seven-year contract with Universal Television, and he's just got this knack. I mean, he really does. He is somebody that's just lived and breathed cinema his whole life. He's not trained in it, but he, he just understands intuitively how to place a camera and what to do with it and how to tell a story. It's just, it's just I mean, there are a handful of people who are just genius savants. Usually when you, re when you hear these kinds of stories, you figure out, that a lot of hard work and stuff went into it. And really, there's no such thing as a savant. 99% of the time, I'd say with the story of artists, that's what it is. But with Spielberg, it's not that he's not a hard worker or anything, but he really does seem to just have had this preternatural gift that, that came through messing around with cameras and stuff when he was a kid and stuff like that. But he's just good at it. And so obviously good at it that even without much of a resume, without having gone to college, he can... The, the, the film producers see it. And so they give him things like Duel, which becomes an event television movie. It's the story of that truck chasing the guy uh, and just a suspense 
kind of mini classic and really well done. And then he gets to do his big movie, which is the Sugarland Express, which nobody cares about now. I, I've never seen it. Any of you guys? No, seen I haven't it? seen it. No. Or the duel. But I, I don't think that movie does particularly well. It's kind of a downbeat hippie story, more, more in line with what I said flailing Hollywood was trying to key off of and do. But they certainly see it as a a well-made movie like oh this guy's got it like when we finally give him some good material to work with he is going to be able to do a good job with it and so he is the one that they entrust jaws with now it's mr spielberg that's that's basically as much of your story as i want to tell so oh, pity <laughs> you can leave us now goodbye bye bye <laughs> goodbye so let's talk about Jaws real quick. The The story of Jaws is one of those weird stories of the gods just smiling and everything going magically right. Not with the production. The production is famous troubled production, but just in terms of it hitting at the right time and it becoming popular, it's just one of those things where a ray of heaven just shined down and it all worked. Peter Benchley is this, he's the author of the novel Jaws. He, he was a struggling writer doing freelance work to support his family. He met with a publisher, pitched him some nonfiction book that never happened, also pitched him the story of Jaws, which was based on a news report of a fisherman catching a 44,550-pound great white off the coast of white of Long Island. And the publisher is just like, yeah, that sounds great. Write that book. And Peter Benchley writes a pretty trashy novel, in my estimation. It's basically the story that we know, but it's got a lot of subplots. And two of the famous subplots are Ellen Brody has an affair with Hooper in the novel, which I'm very glad they cut out. And so there's a lot of sex stuff. And then also an interesting subplot that I think it was right for them to cut out, but it does actually make sense of a plot point that doesn't really work that well in the movie is the mayor is not an idiot in the novel who just makes wrong decisions because he's an idiot. He is in cahoots with the mafia and the mafia wants the town, wants the beach to stay open. Mm -hmm. They have an interest in keeping the the beach open. Hmm. And so eventually actually anticipated that plot problem and wrote the answer to it. Although you could argue it works fine anyway. Just people don't want to believe the worst if they can help it. Yeah, I think in terms of mythology, in terms of what the movie's doing, it's the right call, not just because the mafia would be superfluous, but because the mayor plot, as cartoony as it is, actually does add to the movie. It doesn't... Well, but I mean, it feels like reality to some extent. Yes. Like, no, we're going to turn a blind eye because that's in the best interest of the community as a whole. Right. Yeah. I mean, the whole town hall scene is it, I mean, that would never happen today. It'd never be filmed and that's not how it would go down. But we do things all like that all the time. Yeah. Yeah, And it works as a, as a period piece where you believe the seventies were that way. But yeah, you can believe it, but you can enter into it, or you can just accept it as part of the mythos of the film. I think I've never quite decided whether because the mayor, like, he's wearing a jacket with like little anchors on it. Like yep. he's he's such a dork, and maybe just one notch to the left, like turn him down a little bit. Mm-hmm. I might like that better. But it's a great iconic character. And how many memes of the mayor did we see during COVID? I mean, that was just, that was, that's just been constant <laughs> in the political discourse of our mm-hmm. wonderful times. So we, we could talk about the mayor, but in any case, eventually solution to the problem of the mayor and to the problem of why do they keep this town open when these horrible things are happening was the mafia. 
Benchley had a bunch of terrible titles. He had The Stillness in the Water, Leviathan Rising, Jaws of Death, or Jaws of the Leviathan. And the story goes that 20 minutes before the production of the book, there he's talking with his editor, like, we got to have a title for this thing. And Benchley just says, Mr. Editor, the only word, like we have this word salad of Leviathan and all this stuff. The only word that we've even liked is Jaws. So why don't we call the book Jaws? And the editor says, well, what does that mean? And Benchley says, I have no idea, but it looks good on a title. It's short. It's punchy. It works. So they put it on the title and or they put it on the book. They, they call it the title. And Benchley doesn't expect this book to go anywhere. He expects to make a few bucks. He's quoted as saying, it was a first novel and it was a first novel about a fish. Why would anyone care? But his editor sensed that there might be something here, sent it to the Book of the Month Club. They got excited and the rest is history. And people just, people just latched onto this story. I mean, people were just excited about it. And the movie producers were excited about it. Before it even got released, it reached the offices of Brown and Zanuck at Universal. They secured the rights. They just said, this is going to be a terrific movie. And Spielberg tells the story of, you know, he's done Sugarland Express. He's looking for his next project. He's under contract to Universal. He goes into the studio. He sees a stack of papers with a treatment and it's called Jaws. He doesn't know what it is. The book hasn't hit yet. And he's just like, what is this? Is this a story about a dentist or like, why would this be? What, what is Jaws? But he looks at it. He realizes this is a story about a shark terrorizing a town. And Spielberg, I don't know how much of this is self-mythology. It's, it's always really hard to tell with Spielberg because he's, he's pretty low-key and coy and realistic in the way that he does his self-mythology. He's very good, very good at presenting himself. But he just says he felt this, this kinship with the material and this kind of, he felt this juju in, well, you've got, I did Duel and it, it had four letters and I did, and Jaws has four letters. And that one was a suspense story about a faceless thing chasing a guy. And this one's a suspense story about a faceless thing. And I can, I can really do something with this. So Spielberg decides he wants it. And they give it to him because they've been impressed with his work. And then it has a legendary, horrible production, a troubled <laughs> production. They go to Martha's, Martha's Vineyard, this island, and they shoot. And Spielberg insists on shooting on the sea, which nobody had ever done. It's the first major film shot on the ocean. All, any ocean movie you ever saw before is basically filmed in a tank. And to this day, Titanic filmed in a tank. You do not film... Uh, Master and Commander, right? Yeah, yeah. Filmed in a tank. Yeah, I mean, all these movies are filmed in a tank because the ocean is, we can't conquer it. God made the ocean the ocean and you just, it's stupid to try and make the ocean your production assistant. You've got weather, you've got water, you've got water that's changing. Like you set up one shot and there's waves, you set up the next shot, the water's still. You've got clouds, you've got sun changing all the time. It's just maybe with modern CGI to just fix every shot you can do it a little bit easier, but you're still having salt water, which corrodes your equipment. It's just, I mean, and that's not even taking into account, like you've got to set up a little boat to put your camera on and that's got to be next to the other boat. And it's just, it's just a nightmare. They had a terrible time. Plus they have this mechanical shark, this hydraulic shark that is supposed to go underwater and be able to perform. And the shark does not work. And the big legend of the film is that they would have shown the shark a bunch, but they didn't because the shark never worked. And so Spielberg had to come up with clever ways to shoot around the shark. And of course, that's where the movie gets its potency. 
I, I think probably that's exaggerated. I have to imagine Spielberg was smart enough to realize you don't show the shark until yeah. the end. But it is a nice story that the shark didn't work and therefore we created a masterpiece. Oh, Bruce was just camera shot. Yeah, they called him Bruce. Uh, the, the crew called the movie Flaws because <laughs> they just hated working on this thing. It was supposed to shoot for like three months or four months. It went seven or eight months. Like it just like did not work. Brown and Zanuck, the producers said, the one rule of filmmaking is you do not shut down. If you shut down, then the money people have a chance to reassess and they might shut you down forever. So you shoot one thing, you, you get one shot a day, you go out there, you do something like we are not shooting this movie down. So Spielberg lives on Martha's Vineyard. He's going nuts. Nobody's able to go home. Spielberg says he never left the island that whole time because he thought if he left the island, he'd never come back. There's, 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 there's a lot of fun stories about it. It's just a legendary bad production. The first test of the shark, they try and activate the shark and then it sinks to the bottom of Nantucket Sound, which I love. So they've just got this 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 terrible shark. The, the story is when they sing, when the when the famous scene in the movie where they sing, the, the three fellas sing the song, show me the way to go home. Mm-hmm. The whole crew is okay. crying off camera. <laughs> not not out of- They're all tired and they want to go to yeah, bed. Yeah, not out of sentiment over the scene, but like, I want to go home. It's just a nightmare, but they keep going. Spielberg's worried about getting fired the whole time. In any case, they make the movie and it comes together. I mean, they have to pull a lot of tricks to shoot around the shark. They have to pull a lot of tricks to adjust the footage in post-production so that it'll actually cut together. It's just, it's, it was the worst experience that Steven Spielberg said he ever had. But they get something that the studio recognizes as great. And in the meantime, as they're shooting, the book blows up. It's a big bestseller. And so they're just like, okay, we've, we've got something. People are intrigued by this concept. They want to see this movie. And so... They do something, and this is the most important part of the stories of Jaws because it totally changed the playbook, and it's the playbook that we all grew up with, and it's just changed the kinds of stories that are told and how they're told and how they're marketed and how they're released. Universal spent $1.8 million marketing Jaws, which was huge, and specifically, they spent $700,000 on national television spots. It was the first movie to advertise on TV. And those advertisements are awesome. You can find these vintage ads where it's just going through the water and you hear the Williams theme, and you hear this portentous narrator, you know, it is as if God created the devil and gave him Jaws. And so they, they work people up into a frenzy. Everybody wants to see this movie. It becomes an event in a way that no movie had before. Like everybody is, is already scared of the water. They're already scared to go in the ocean before the movies even come out like they've pe- people are so excited for this thing and, and this kind of hype has just never happened before and then they do something that's also never happened before the way that you released movies at the time was you built momentum you released them in some big cities new york la chicago whatever and got people excited got some newsreel footage of the lines and stuff and oh you know and then us living in podunk indiana we're like oh i hear the Everybody in LA is really excited about The Godfather. I wonder when that'll come. And then eventually it travels across the country and word of mouth builds. And finally, The Godfather hits Evansville a few months later and we're all primed to see it. That was just the model. Jaws abandons that model and releases in 400 theaters at the same time. 
Which is hilarious because Doctor Strange, as we're recording this in the Multiverse of Madness, just came out, released, I think it has the record and it released in something like 500 or 5,600 theaters or something. So hmm. 400, nothing, but 400 felt like a lot at the time. And it turns out that the whole model was bunk. If you do enough advertising and if you have a high concept property that people are excited about, then you can make a boatload of money, no pun intended. The might even need a bigger boat. You might even need a bigger boat for that money that you make <laughs> opening weekend. And so the net result is for a while until it was supplanted by Star Wars. Jaws is the biggest money maker of all time. 472 million worldwide adjusted for inflation. It's earned 260 billion at this point, which makes it the seventh highest grossing movie of all time if you adjust for inflation. But the the other thing that's important about what happened with Jaws and, and, and the thing that makes it so seminal and so influential is it created the summer movie season. Summer movies used to be the dumping ground for when we, we like just put out our schlocky movies that only kids would want to go see. And we did not build movies, as I said earlier, for kids. We built them for adults. But And so, yeah, if you've got some high concept bees attack a city or something or what was jake's thing uh waldo goes to africa <laughs> and fights babes and fights babes you throw that out in the summer you don't spend a lot of money on it it's it just frank get it right yeah frank goes to africa and fights babes it's like well kids like to see frank they like to see africa they definitely like to see babes so we'll put that out the summer we'll make a couple bucks but what jo- what they accidentally discover with jaws is oh wait a second Kids are the ones with all the expendable cash. They're the ones that go see movies over and over again. And they're free during the summer. And if we throw out one... It, uh, and it's hot in the summer. Right. And so instead of spending a bunch of money on star vehicles for old people to go see, let's, let's flip the script. Let's put all our, our production money and put all of our advertising money into making movies for teenagers with these big high concept ideas, a shark terrorizes a town or a monster or superheroes or whatever. Let's that that's, that's where the money is. And that's where production costs should be. That's where advertising costs should be. And so that's exactly what we do. And so Jaws creates the summer movie season. It creates basically the idea of high concept B movies done with a movie resources. And now they just are a movies. People were making movies like Jaws all the time. They just never had a good director or good special effects or anything like that or good actors. Now you hire the good actors and you put the money into something silly like Jaws. You don't put the money into the... Pers- yeah. Here's an idea. If, if people will <coughs> go and pay money for your trash that you put nothing into and you figured out, hey, people just want to see the scary monster movie and we don't have to put anything into it. And they'll still go and pay for that. Maybe if we put money into it and made it awesome, mm-hmm. everyone will go see it twice. Right. And, and that's exactly what happens with Jaws and then Star Wars. And then if that didn't convince them, Star Wars comes along two years later and it's over, baby. Movies are now primarily in the business of catering to young people with big, splashy, high concept, fun, exciting, adventurous concepts. With big marketing campaigns on TV, creating as much hype as possible. So, you, so you're not looking for the best story, the best screenplay, the best property for an actor. You're looking for that concept that 
sells itself and that you can build a, a marketing campaign around. And so that drives so much of the decisions. It's not about artistry. It's not about storytelling. It's not about appeasing stars even. It's about appeasing the young people who go to movies. And, and what really appeases them is a concept that they're excited about more than anything. Like, And the concept can be puerile and vulgar. It can be something like Porky's or something. It can be the concept is this movie has a lot of nudity. That can be the con. That can be a concept, or it can be your favorite comedy stars from Saturday Night Live fight ghosts, or it can be Indiana Jones has the most exciting adventures. But we're not. Our industry is not driven by the need to tell stories that adults will appreciate anymore. It's. Do you remember how you like that Han Solo guy? What mm-hmm. if we had a movie franchise just about him? Yep. And then, of course. Somewhere in the 90s and 2000s, they discover, oh, the real way to do this is to just take IP that people already like and pour lots of money into that. But we're, we're all familiar with that story. But Jaws is the birth of everything. Now, one more piece of context before we talk our way through this movie. Ben, you have uh, looked up real life shark information. Tell us <laughs> about... Sharks? Yeah, tell us about sharks. Well, I just looked up some stuff about. We've talked about the Hollywood sharks. Oh man! Tell us about. Now we're talking about the real sharks. (laughs) That's right. Well, everyone knows shark attacks are rare. They're really rare. What can you say? Okay, I'm just going to start quoting some Wikipedia stuff here. An average of more than 38 people die annually from lightning strikes in coastal states, while less than one person per year is killed by a shark in Florida. So, so your chance of getting attacked by a shark in florida in in the united states now we're florida we're switching back to come on what sorry go ahead oh okay here this 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 will satisfy you more in the united states even considering only people who go to beaches a person's chance of getting attacked by a shark is one in 11.5 million and a person's chance of getting killed by a shark is less than one in 264.1 million there are wikipedia goes on to say that if you are like surfing in Western Australia at a certain time of year, suddenly your, your chances of getting bitten or killed go way up. <laughs> but even so, like uh, the, the worst risk it quotes is for divers. One in 16,000 if you're, if you're in winter or spring off the coast of Western Australia. So it's, it's pretty low as a rule. And I read about, I, I, I read the transcript of an NPR interview with a shark dude who talked, you know, some about Jaws and Hooper. Mm-hmm. And he, he was, it was interesting because sharks, <laughs> sharks are, are, are sensitive to touch, but their main way of exploring things is to bite them. Mm-hmm. What's that? I'll bite it. I'll find out. So often what happens is people who get attacked are getting like, what, what's that? Oh, it's not very good. Bite. I'll see you later. Well, see you later. Yeah, but now my arm is gone. Or now like my guts are hanging out because you bit me. So the shark... Sharks are not, I mean, wh- one thing that this guy points out is like the, I, the film's idea of territoriality when Hooper says like, well, it's territoriality, an idea, that's just a theory, but I happen to agree with it. That Jaws is, he's chosen this beach as his territory, now he's going to come here to feed. The, the, the shark scientist points out the obvious fact that, well, m- maybe they do do that some, but they're not interested in humans because there's a billion beaches where they could do that very thing and they don't. That just doesn't happen. Like, we're just not their natural food. It's just, it's very rare for a shark to actually attack you uh, as prey. Because most shark attacks occurred in three feet of water. 
I didn't even... I forgot to read about that one. That's in the movie, isn't it? It is in the movie. It's in the movie, but... Somebody in that movie didn't forget to read about it. Someone someone didn't, but someone in real life read a more interesting interview with the, the, the shark scientist. Anyway, sharks 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 are cool. I mean, this guy just talks about like... Have you ever seen videos of people hypnotizing sharks? No. I have. It's, no. It's, it's amazing. Ben, you did your shark, shark research and you never came across that? I, I didn't even they look hip, up videos, Jake. They hypnotize them by rubbing their noses. And they can like, once they like... You can like put them in a trance by how you yeah. rub their noses. Yeah, yeah. You can like tip them upside down. And oh, spin you know, them I have seen these. Yes, yes, like yes, yes. It's been a while. It's yeah. amazing. I've yeah. s- I have seen those. Yes, yeah. got to yes. tune into Shark Week more often. I, right. I I will. Well, but this guy was saying like if 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 a giant shark comes and it's like investigating you, you know, next time you're diving in the Caribbean, Jake, with your family, what you ought to do is I've only st- done that once. <laughs> right. <laughs> what you ought to do is is you. you but I did do it once. You ought to stare into its eyes and even approach it. I saw a barracuda. I don't know if this works for barracuda. Barracuda! And, and so that... Stare, stare it in its eyes. Stare it in its eyes, approach it, because sharks are actually not... Like, they're probably just investigating you. Mm-hmm. And and then, <laughs> and then the shark guy was like, well, and if it starts coming really close, you should push it away. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. So, okay, one, one, one last thing. The, the three kinds of sharks that are responsible for most attacks re- that are recorded are the great white, of course, Jaw- Mr. Jaws himself, the tiger shark, and the bull shark. Tiger sharks for, are the Indianapolis, right? Well, tiger sharks are mentioned, yeah, but also the other one that's not, that we just don't have good data on, but that's suspected as being, that maybe having eaten more people than all those sharks is the oceanic white tip, which is in deep waters. It's mm. not going to be by the shore. And so the oceanic white tip is going to pick off castaways and stuff. So they think that that one was responsible for a lot of the Indianapolis casualties along, yeah, along with the tiger shark. Hmm. But it's just, we don't have great records of shark attacks generally, I think, but especially of that kind. Like who knows what happened to you out on the open ocean if we never saw you again. But the, but the white tips are aggressive enough that probably they've eaten a lot of people mm-hmm. as far as shark attacks go. So sharks are sharks are pretty cool. I mean, almost reading this guy's account almost made me want to like go swim with sharks or something. Honestly, have fun. Yeah. Well, I think I think what it does is is it is maybe maybe it's actually not maybe it'll terrify you more, but it's a counterbalance to oh no, Jaws destroyed the ocean for me. Oh well, forget mm-hmm. it. It's like well, if you learn a little bit more about sharks, yes, they're still terrifying, but also you don't feel like they're these implacable. Killing machines. Slashers. Yeah. The, the, the Michael Myers of yeah, the Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. As you talk, I have Moby Dick in my mind uh, because we've been reading it. And it's interesting how much Herman Melville goes out of his way to say, well, we all think that we've all come to understand in, in this time period, what is it, 1860 or something, that, that whales mm-hmm. are just creatures. But, <laughs> but I want you to remember that they actually are malevolent monsters. And so here's an, here's an account of a whale attacking a ship. Here's another account of a whale uh-huh. attacking a ship. Here's, yeah. here's all this stuff. Here, mm-hmm. here, here's ancient poetry about mm-hmm. how terrifying whales are. Right. There's all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. And it, what's interesting too, like you almost feel mm-hmm. reading Melville that there's just like been this like shadow campaign, mm-hmm. you know, like a conspiracy to... To represent the terrors of the deep is uh, there's actually nothing terrifying out there in this world. Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking. As Ben's talking, it's like I'm sure that 
shark guy knows what he's talking about. And I don't think Ben said anything wrong, but I'm like, I wonder how much of that is just stupidity, (laughs) not stupidity exactly, but just the fact that we need to equalize everything these days. And we, we, we can't say that there's just push it away. Just just push it away. It's going to be fine. It's like God actually did elect predators Mm-hmm. and monsters and leviathons in the fall well and things. so what's interesting then too when you come back to the discussion mm-hmm. of whales i mean okay nobody actually goes swimming with great whites right yes right? there's a reason for that yeah and there's also a reason that whenever you see a whale documentary we never see sperm whales we see blue whales we see all kinds of we see killer whales before we see sperm whales and, it's, and there's a reason for that and there's a reason why that was singled out by Melville as being the aggressive one that you don't mess with. I guess the only thing, other thing I have to say about that is I actually spent a little bit of time trying to look and see if I could find a documentary or video or anything about sperm whales. Mm -hmm. And I found a 50 minute documentary on YouTube and a lot of it's CGI. Right. Like there's just, we don't know a lot about these guys. Right. And they're kind of scary. They have teeth, Mm -hmm. jaws. And well, one of the things that this movie understands mm. is that, like we said at the top, they're just they're just our primal things that we can't control, and that's what a movie like this gets at allegorically, if not completely literally. But I think with sharks and with sea monsters, it is literally true. Whether the the current liberal big ocean ocean oceanographic whatever big big shark study wants to admit it or not. It is true that there are monsters of the deep and they are monstrous. I mean, the Bible talks about it. The book of Job talks about it. Hmm. I, I, we can't hmm. just say, well, there was a category, as I suppose some people do. There was a category of scary monsters that they used to have, but I guess that's gone away. Hmm. I don't think so. So not to, I think everything that you said about sharks is valuable. And it's nice, it's good to know that this movie is laying it on thick. Yeah. But hmm. I don't think we should altogether abandon the notion that sharks are scary. They represent something scary. So I think that's about all the background and context. Big picture thoughts on Jaws. We've kind of already said them, I guess. But uh, Ben, what are your big picture thoughts on Jaws? Big picture thoughts. It's, It's a pretty great movie. It just captures, it just feels like a small town and some things that might happen. And I don't know. Just feels like you're there spending a few days at the beach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it just feels like, I mean, I think one thing, one reason I liked it so much as a kid is it captured the flavor of being at the beach. Yeah, you can really smell the salt water in this movie. Yeah, you can. More than just about anything. Yeah. Yeah. And then it captured the dynamic between these dudes, these three main, your three well, main guys. The beach guys. is a character. The town is a character. Yeah. All those white Everybody's picket fences. Everybody's a character. Yeah. The boat is a character, yeah. the orca. I mean, like everything about it is just very tactile mm-hmm. and very real. Yeah. And, the, and this ta- he takes a lot of time building the world and setting things up and yeah. allowing, they would never give that town hall meeting as much time as they did in a modern movie. Mm-hmm. They would never give Mrs. Kittner as much time as they did. But it adds so much to the- The, the fact that she's going to show up. Yeah. And in, in, in it's a pretty hack. Like, if you think about writing it, like, it's pretty over the top to have Mrs. Kittner show up. The crowd parts, like, escorted, exodus. Uh, uh, dressed in black with a veil. American uh-huh. Gothic, yeah. 
Yeah, it is a very American Gothic kind mm-hmm. of kind of scene. And she walks up and you know does the face to face accusation with Brody, Chief Brody, mm-hmm. and you knew and 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 they just let her and ma- they make her be emotional and they let her sit there and just make everything as uncomfortable as possible. Every yeah. little thing like that. This movie has a ton of decisions like that mm-hmm. yep. feel incidental, but in a movie where every scene is telling a story, nothing is incidental. So if we're going to be at the table and dad is, he can't eat because mm-hmm. he's sick to his stomach over everything that's happened. And he's worried about the town and he's worried and he's grieved over this boy and he has a shark problem and he's up against every, the the town officials and his we're going to have his son sitting at the table imitating Mm. him movement for movement, Mm -hmm. right? Like, and how enriching to Brody's character, to the humanity of the whole story, Mm -hmm. just that little thing is. Mm -hmm. Or he picks him up later and is carrying him and he uh, slips his hand up the back of his shirt and rubs his back Mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's a ton of little detail. Well, the the stuff I'm thinking of is when, when the Kittner boys attacked, before it happens, you even as we're building suspense, you're cutting to a kid like singing Muffin Man as he's, <laughs> yeah. all these, there's like an obese lady with a sun hat. It's like all right. these little slice mm-hmm. of life things that put you in a realistic beach setting and it just feels so tactile and so yeah. like the kind of people watching you would do. And you just imagine the way that some hack would do that movie now. We'd have a bunch of beautiful Hollywood bodies probably some fan servicey, you know, ladies and stuff, or, or even if we didn't, it would just, uh, you, you compare it to like, uh, to, to, to take the example that we're kind of building up to the Colin Trevorrow Jurassic world where they go to Jurassic park and the two little boys are, you know, seeing the, the dinosaurs in the park before all everything goes wrong. Like imagine how much more effective all that stuff would have been. And I actually rewatched it cause I thought this might be a good analogy, uh, or comparison point. Like, like if you actually, if it actually anchored you in a park with people, the way that this movie yeah. anchors you in a beach with yeah, people. Well, you know, yeah. you have all these kids and all these people doing all these different things. Mm-hmm. And then you have this mom and her boy in 10 more minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we, we take the time to go see him get the floaty and then run back out and everybody else is out there. And then we don't see him anymore. Mm-hmm. What we see is the mom show up late to the party wondering where her son is. Right. And it's just, beautifully designed and structured and told mm-hmm. yeah. just in every everything is like that in yeah. this movie and so it just like for me i guess am i jumping into ben or maybe i'm just uh, taking it all right this is fine this is my big picture now yeah a l- a i'm little, taking it i mean like i took like i owned you when you were a movie chain what no i put back yeah well <laughs> we weren't happy about it yeah well now i own everything because <laughs> I, I own i'm gonna say one o- i'm gonna say one other thing before you i let you you take over which is that as a kid i loved the pacing mm-hmm. of this movie that's one of the things i loved that i it was like a cozy movie mm-hmm. where even though you, you know you you talked about nathan how you watched it and you were like man why isn't this a thrill a minute like indiana jones mm-hmm. why well, for whatever reason when i was introduced to it i was like this movie is great because it has its own, I can have told you this, but it had its own, like, everything is significant. Everything takes some time. All these characters have some little depth and little touches. Just, it's just good. Just get to hang out in the beach town. Mm-hmm. But everything's actually moving along in a very 
yeah. a very calculated, like, this, the story is progressing, progressing, progressing. So, I, I somehow as a kid, I was like, oh, this is, this is great. All right, I'm done. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just, with the exception of that opening scene. Right. I felt the same way that I felt reading Moby Dick. Not just in the sort of primordial, like, awe and wonder of it all, but wow, this is a really amazing and well-crafted novel, and I just love and mm-hmm. enjoy reading it. And wow, this is, an, this is just a really well-crafted movie, and I actually like good movies. I like a well-crafted movie. I was, every once in a while, and you, I realized I've probably done this three or four times on this show or maybe even more, I start to question if I even like movies. Mm-hmm. Like I, we see enough trash that it's just like, maybe I don't like movies. And maybe I'm just getting old and commercial. Mm-hmm. Maybe I just don't like movies. Like mm-hmm. we saw Dune. Maybe I just don't like movies. And then I watched Jaws and I'm like, oh man. You got a real filmmaker anchoring you in a real world with real characters. <laughs> real characters and yeah. everything. Setups and payoffs and details mm-hmm. and lots of two plus two and lots of, extraneous little detail extraneous little details that you don't even need to know but like you can figure it out like you can put it together you can find out later you know jumping ahead but the scene where they're talking about her there's scars and all they give us is brody just uh yes exactly looks at his scar Uh, Uh. we know something happened we don't know what. And we don't need to. And we, we don't know, need to know. We know yeah. everything thought, we know. We know he thought about telling you <sighs> his scar story, and he decided not to. Yeah, right. That's and that's, and great. that tells you everything tells about you so this much. guy and his particular brand of manhood and everything. And the movie's full of stuff like that. And it, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about details about scuba diving, mm-hmm. right? Like, ain't got no spit. Well, who knows that you need spit in order to keep your uh, mass from defogging? Well, people who've done diving, mm-hmm. right? You know, that's something you can figure out from context. That's something you can know from experience, or it's just a detail that enriches it if you if you don't know, mm-hmm. right? Before I just noticed this for the very first time, and this is just another like dopey little detail thing. But before uh, Hooper goes diving, free diving to check out the... The jump scare scene. Yeah, but into the jump scare scene, he, hyperventil- he hyperventilates. And you can hear him hyperventilating. It's a free diving technique in order to increase your ability to hold your breath for an extended period of time. I, I learned about that because I like read a Wim Hof thing. Mm-hmm. And then I tried it and I could hold my breath for over two minutes doing it. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous, right? Because you can pass out and that's how free divers drown and die. But it's a little detail that is true to life that's actually there that enriches things. And there are all kinds of things like that. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just like the visual of the shooting star over Brody's head at night mm-hmm. or yeah. any, any number of little things like that that are thrown in that are, they're all adding to the story one way or another. So that's why mm-hmm. I, I didn't feel like I was being a spoil sport when we had mm-hmm. Ben debunk a few shark myths because what's great is this is actually kind of a little bit of a ridiculous story. And yet it's so (laughs) grounded in reality that by the time this evil, malevolent monster shark is for no particular reason tearing their boat apart, (laughs) by the time it gets to the ridiculous stuff, the whole last act of this movie, it's just like, 
there's an evil monster shark that's... It's already ate one person. It's probably full, but it doesn't matter. It's bearing down on (laughs) our hero like a train. It's going to eat the boat. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) By the time the movie just goes bananas with stuff that we actually should take a step back from and, and say, wait a second, we are so invested. We've built up this monster shark so much in our minds. We love these characters and they're so strong. The reality, the tactile reality of the boat and the world is so strong that we just don't question any of that stuff. And that's how that's how a good thriller should work. You know, it, it should be built and constructed in such a way that we're drawn in. And then when it wants to take its calculated leaps that every good story should take, we're willing to go along with them. And they feel inevitable. So it doesn't feel hacked that we have this scene where it's like, be careful with those tanks, they'll explode. Right. And it doesn't feel hacked that we're like, Oh, now we're all going to play with our guns and show that we've got guns. I'm going to strap on my gun. You get yours and shoot it aimlessly at the shark in the water as if somebody wouldn't know that. No, it's because there's 50 other things like that that are actually in there that some of some of which actually don't pay off. They're just going to slam that machete into the into the side of the boat and it's going to stick there and we're going to linger on it as if that's going to be somehow significant. And, you know, he is going to be stabbing the he's going to grab it and stab the shark with it mm-hmm. as he gets eaten alive yeah but it doesn't make much difference no, for poor uh doesn't make poor much, Quint, for, much difference for, Quint. Oh, for poor quint oh man yeah i i i love this movie well uh, any some other? fake foreshadowing of mm-hmm. hooper getting cut in half with the barrels and the in the rope mm-hmm well, and that's where you take a step back. You realize how troubled the production. I didn't say they didn't even have a completed script when they started filming this because of production things. They had to start filming this and they were writing it as they went along. The Indianapolis speech was finished a day or two before. And I think Robert Shaw, the actor, added a lot to it. He was a playwright. So this movie is just one of those weird, happy accidents <laughs> that that happened because they had good material because Spielberg was, in fact, a a genius in bloom. Yeah, it's so good. So let's talk about, let's talk through this movie. You got the opening credits and this is something that I love that I think Spielberg's really good at. You just have like a soundscape that immediately over the logo draws you in. Jurassic Park has like the rustling of, um, you know, jungle kind of. Yeah. And and this movie has, it sounds like a submarine or something. It's like, it's like the kind of a underwater sound i don't know exactly what it is maybe it is just a recording of underwater but you have this underwater sound as we see the universal logo and then you have johnny williams famous theme i guess we should talk about that for a note for a score that's basically two notes repeated over and over over again e f e f e f e f e f it doesn't even vary you have little things under it yep but it's fantastic and then you come to the opening scene of the movie, which we have already said we have some thoughts about. So, yep. yeah. yeah, it's HD doesn't do it any favors. I guess that's the, the short version. Yeah, of I, I had forgotten about it. And it's hard to know how much I had forgotten about it and how much it wasn't a thing because I hadn't watched it in 4K before. Right. And I, so I, do, I don't remember ever having seen the things i saw Mm -hmm. yeah just you know if you watch this movie you can close your eyes or something i do love it as a scene like i i think it's a really effective way to open the movie i think it should be done more modestly obviously but 
I a you start with a great Spielberg oneer. Spielberg's famous for his one shot where the camera moves and you know mm-hmm. re you have different setups within the same scene. You know it becomes a close. So basically, what the oneer is is we're just traveling across all these hippies doing their hippie stuff and playing guitar and so they're playing guitar. Some are smoking weed, some are drinking beer. And we got the fire. It really gives you that feeling. Again, it's really tactile. Like if you've ever had a, a youth group event at night with a fire, I mean, of course everybody's been outside with a fire on the beach and this movie, you know, just takes the time to give you that feeling, which is nice. But we go through all these kind of wide shots and then we end on the leering face <laughs> of this hippie guy as he looks at, I think her name is Chrissy. And then, mm-hmm. we, and, then, and then we finally cut to her and she's like, come on, big boy. Which is just like, you can imagine how, how much less effective that would be if you divided it up into four or five shots. Mm-hmm. But it's just Spielberg's brilliance in miniature to have this wide shot suddenly end on a close-up of, that tells you everything you need to know about these two characters. And that's, that's something that we talked about Kurosawa doing in Yojimbo as well. Yeah. Those winners. Yeah, 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 cool stuff. Yeah, this movie has a bunch of them, and I'll I'll point them out as they go. Everyone that talks about this movie says they weren't trying to be puritanical; that the movie wasn't designed to punish the girl for for being what she was. I think that that's absolute absolute bunk. I think the whether they meant it that way or not, I think the reason a scene, one of the reasons a scene like that has power is because. We're all even even the most liberal among us are have an innate conservative streak, and it makes sense to us when someone's being licentious, and then the hand of God just shows up and punishes shows up them. and punishes them. It it makes whether they were trying to make a moral statement or not, it makes storytelling sense. It's like she, if anyone was going to be sacrificed to this primordial God to start the terror, it was going to be someone who was in a place where they shouldn't be doing something that they shouldn't do. It gives it a little bit of that, that mythic archetypal feeling just a little bit more to have her, her be a, a bad girl. I, I think it, if you compare it to the Jurassic park scene where the random guy, like I said, gets sucked into the thing. And there's, it, it, I think one of the reasons that scene doesn't have the same kick that the scene has is because that scene just feels like they made a mistake. Like, I don't know why, like the, there's no particular, angle on why that guy deserved to die or were they being foolish in the way they transported the raptor or was it just like these things happen with dinosaurs there's not really a we haven't really made a decision on why this sort of thing happened whereas there's all kinds of associations and contexts and things that you can read into and and you have this person being a 1970s hippie babe super licentious skinny dipping and then the shark's pulling her under and she scream, she's screaming, oh God, God help me. She's calling on God. And I don't want to maybe all gospel coalition. I'm not saying they intended this as any kind of moral statement or that it is a great moral statement. I'm just saying the reason it works in storytelling math is because you're including stuff like mm-hmm. that. It, it adds to the, the power and the horror of the scene. I did not remember this scene being as risque. I also did not remember it being particularly scary or anything like that but watching it this time it was like oh man this is like this is brutal like we're spending a lot of time with her screaming and getting pulled under and coming yeah. back up and almost looking like maybe the shark's bored with her mm-hmm. playing with her or something yeah so there's that scene anything else to say about that and then we meet chief brody 
played by Roy Scheider. You guys like Roy Scheider in this movie? He's yeah, yeah he's great. awesome. He's interesting. He very much like reminds me of that generation. Like he is kind of he's got a lot of dad energy or grandpa right. energy for yeah. being a relatively young man in the movie. And he's just got this weird appearance kind of he's he's very manly looking, but I don't know, he looks like a manly man had a baby with a skeleton or something like that. <laughs> he's he's kind of gaunt and yeah. and grim looking and contained. He's the kind of actor that's if you compare him to Quint or Hooper, they're both exuding a lot of energy, but he's drawing energy in. You're never watching him. You're never fascinated as a viewer by him because, oh, he's doing something interesting. It's always like you're leaning into, like, what is he thinking What's right now? What's inside of him? Yeah, What's, what's inside of inside? him? And he's got the ugliest wallpaper in the world and white picket fences and a little kid and a wife and... Two little boys. Uh, two little boys, yeah. But the one comes in with the the cut on his hand, mm-hmm. which again, I think that speaks to what Jake was talking about earlier. It's not, what does the cut on the hand do? I, I don't know exactly what it does or why it's there, but it gives you a sense of tactile reality. It, you know, it gives dad a chance to say, you've been playing with that on that rusty swing set. I told you to leave it alone. It gives him a, that sort of dad vibe mm. of disapproval and discipline and authority while mom is the sympathetic one who's going to tend to the wound. Right. And then in a, in a minute, when he leaves, mom and the kid are going to be playing on the swing set that dad had just said. I never like, noticed that before. That's funny. That is what happens when it's, he walks It's like the out. whole movie in miniature. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you were playing on that swing set. I told you not to play on it until I fix it. Mm-hmm. And so then mom's cleaning him up or whatever. And then when he walks out the door mom and the kid are, pu- are swinging on the swing set together. Right. We just needed a shark to come up and grab the boy, a land shark, and, and then be like the whole movie in a miniature. Yeah, he's great. And then we have the investigating the, the body scene. Famously, that arm was total crap. Like it was just a plastic arm that looked looked like not a real arm at all. And so Spielberg was forced to improvise and he came up with, well, let's bury it in the sand and put a bunch of crabs over it. And it ends up being much more effective and gross mm-hmm. than it would be if we just had a, an arm laying there. And then we have the town fathers on the fair ferry. We've got the, another, another nice Spielberg oneer. probably the most Spielberg oneery oneer to notice in the movie is the one where Chief Brody's standing in the background. The town fathers surround him. They get on the ferry mm-hmm. all in one shot. We stand on the ferry. It turns into kind of a, it's a long shot. It turns into a medium mm-hmm. shot. And then finally the mayor and Brody come and occupy the front of the frame as things get a little bit more heated mm-hmm. between them. And they have this whole conversation on the ferry and we're establishing all kinds of things about just the geography of where we are, the tactile reality. And we're, establishing these characters and i guess we've already talked about this you guys are pro you guys think the mayor is well played and well situated in this story i always kind of debate with myself whether yeah, he's too cartoony know. and he's cartoony in a fun he way f- he feels pretty cartoony by now standards today's standards but i don't know maybe he's not I, I like the idea that this island just has a bunch of weird people on it because people are weird. Mm-hmm. And if you live, especially in a little town for a while, you get weird. And yeah. I just I just like it, even if it is exaggerated. I like, I like that he is a cartoon. Certainly Spielberg 
wants us all to believe that people are just terrible and they don't care about anybody but their own business interests. Although, I'm sorry, I have such such Jurassic Park in my mind because that's the one I actually watched more recently. Jurassic Park is like, here's the lawyer. He's a moron. He's slipping as he gets off of the raft. And right. he's like, every line is like, we can make a fortune off of this place. And right. uh, ah, him and they're going to sue the pants off. Like uh, he, everything he says is a dumb, callow, greedy lawyer thing. And now he's on the toilet and he's going to die. <laughs> no dignity for lawyers. So, uh-huh. and, and Jurassic Park has a number of character beats that are just like, well, or the other one is, uh, what's his face? The guy from Seinfeld, whatever his name is, the fat guy. Oh, yeah. He's like, he's Nedry. The f- yeah, Nedry. He's a fat guy. He's stupid. He likes money and he likes eating things. He likes Cool Whip. He's, his thing, his desk is covered in candy bar wrappers. <laughs> fat guy. There's like, it's like so much more that is like what 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 but maybe the seeds that are planted with the mayor wearing this ridiculous anchor shirt well you see the same thing even in uh poltergeist yes right just the oh of course it was an indian grave you know Mm -hmm. but money well and you could say that spielberg led the sort of second half of the 20th century century rebellion against authority figures and that's true but you do have to place jaws and all these movies is coming. I think Watergate was like 72 to 74 and Jaws is 75. So put the mayor in that context. Like we've had institutional authority just really destroy itself and really look hypocritical and really look stupid. Mm. And the whole audience is primed for, to believe this mayor is that callow, that Mm -hmm. selfish, that stupid, that narcissistic. Maybe they're playing to some silly liberal tropes or things like that. But I think there's a there's a reason politically and sociologically at the time that people would have really responded to, oh yeah, mayors, <laughs> that's how they are, kind of thing. I guess we already kind of talked about the first shark attack with the beach and everything. All the documentary kind of stuff is really wonderful. Like we said, it really anchors you in that scene with, with all the little vignettes, the kids singing the muffin man, the dog owner calling for their pippet their dog mm-hmm. and stuff like that yeah I, I guess the only other thing we should note i don't know that there's much to say about it but you have the ac- absolutely iconic famous shma- smash zoom shot where the kittner boys raft erupts in blood and then we which is wow pretty gory and then we have the it's the vertigo shot it's mm-hmm. if you don't know what they're doing they are moving the camera forward while zooming out Or maybe it's the opposite. You're zooming in while moving the camera backwards, but it creates this weird disorienting effect. And it's what they do with Roy Scheider when he's scared or whatever. When he realizes basically what's happening. Right. Well, and you realize that's a a good place to look at and see what Spielberg's doing that's new and exciting. It's the same thing that Hitchcock did. It's the same thing that a lot of great filmmakers do, but it's not something that everybody does. He's using the camera to tell the story. It's not just like, let's set up the camera and let Scheider act. Scheider's actually not doing that much. Scheider's just supposed to stand there and make a face, and then the camera is going to do something fancy, and that's gonna what's going to actually put us in the emotional headspace of the character much more than anything that Scheider's doing. So I remember seeing an interview with Liam Neeson talking about Schindler's List, and he was like talking about how upset he was in the first couple of days of filming because Spielberg would just be like, all right, you stand there and have your cigarette here and make sure some smoke goes this direction. And it just felt very mechanical. And he was like, when am I going to get a chance to act? 
And then, uh, what's that guy's name? Ben Kingsley said, no, 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 you are the marionette and Spielberg is the master or something like that. <laughs> Some pretentious thing like that. And Liam Neeson was like, all right, I'll be a marionette. And then, of course, he's a fantastic performance as, you know, Oscar Schindler. But that is kind of who Spielberg is. Ben Kingsley needs to go back to playing Trevor. Yeah, well, Ben Kingsley just is Trevor. That's the, <laughs> that's the truth. If you've ever seen an interview, that guy is the most pretentious guy. So the, the Kittner boy bites it. And then we introduce Quint. One of the great movie characters, I think. I mean, you could argue, do you guys like Quint? You could argue he's like in a different movie than, than everybody else. <laughs> I, he feels, if he feels like he's in a different movie than anybody else, it, fe it feels like he shows up and is in a different movie. Right. And then he, like he should transforms be. the movie. He showed up out of act three of this movie mm -hmm. and came back and said, it's time to move to act two. Right. Like you guys all realize act three is going to happen if you don't listen to me. Like I'm, and a, I'm already, I'm already there. I'm already living it. I see it. I feel it. Mm -hmm. And this is the feeling, the vibe you're getting from me. That's the vibe of act three. So time to shift this whole movie in a different direction. Yeah. It does feel like everything's been so low key and almost like verite documentary. And then it's like a movie character walks <laughs> into the movie. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> this guy's from a movie. <laughs> I mean, I love it. He's great, but I mean, he is chewing the scenery even more than old Jaws himself. Mm -hmm. He's fantastic, though. Did you guys ever see A Man for All Seasons? The, a long time yeah, ago. Yeah. Robert Shaw plays Henry VIII. Oh, yeah. He's that, awesome. And he's awesome. Yeah, he's really... He's just... In all of his performances that I've seen, the other famous one is he plays 007's nemesis mm -hmm. in From Russia with Love, and they have this big fight scene on a train and it's still to this it's the second james bond movie it's super old but it's still one of the more brutal james bond fights and extended like classic awesome action scenes that james bond this the franchise has ever done um and they have this this really extended bare knuckle brawl on a train and uh shaw's in that in all the movies that i've seen he has this really feral kind of look in repose like he can do different things he can be really exaggerated when he's when he's quint when he's king henry the eighth he, he can exude a lot of energy you know almost like jack nicholson or somebody but then when he's watching people he's always kind of got his mouth is half open and he's kind of half smiling and mm -hmm. he's just he's got he's almost got a shark like quality himself and he's just so fun to watch and completely british by the way doing a hmm pretty good irish new england i mean I, I don't know your wife knows those accents ben uh, she i mean she quint is like other right she had nothing to say about that he, he's just his own yeah his own thing yeah. yeah it works i mean again he's he's from planet what he really is is he's doing a pirate accent and he's i think one of the reasons we accept him is because he's just an he's a 19th century whaler right yeah exactly i think he stepped out of Melville. We all have Moby Dick in our mind. It's one of the yeah. reasons we just accept this character. But he's based on, who is it? Didn't you, didn't you research this? Yeah, I remember. He's based on somebody from the island where they yeah. were filming, right? Yeah, I saw this, but I didn't look into it. Yeah, I've, I've seen it. He's based on a fisherman. Like Robert Shaw just hung out with a real fisherman on the island. Frank, Frank Mundus. And adapted the accent. And yeah, I don't doubt that there are people exactly like this. I don't doubt that Robert Shaw's doing a good impression of them. I just think the net effect is... Like Jake said, we've got Captain Ahab, basically. Yeah, he's meant to be Ahab. Right. He is Ahab stepping out of the pages of Moby Dick, mm -hmm. doing battle with the shark that took down the Indianapolis instead of 
the whale that bit off his leg. Right. Well, it's, we'll have to talk about whether Quint deserved to die or not, because I think the election of him for sacrifice is one of the interesting points. It's an interesting choice. It's an interesting choice. It's an interesting choice. You could just as easily make Hooper the sacrifice. Yeah. I think they made the right choice, but we'll, I think they made the right we'll, choice. we'll talk about it when we get there. Yeah. Um, I, I think you could actually argue a good choice would have been nobody. Yeah. Because this but movie. But not Hooper. But this because movie Hooper does. feels, Hooper would feel bad. Well, I guess mm-hmm. we'll just jump ahead and talk about it. So the argument for Hooper is he is the silly boyish intellectual who thinks he understands this thing and thinks that he can use modern technology like a cage to make an impact. And so he doesn't respect it. He dies. But that just doesn't hold up yeah. because he does respect it. He's he's like he knows that the shark can take out that cage his his answer is you got a better idea like mm-hmm. what else are we gonna do he's willing to go and just do the thing and die right and he's got his battle wounds you know he's been bitten bitten by sharks before actually. yeah I, I think the scar scene does a lot for hooper yeah yeah well and hooper actually does die in the book by the way i mean he's having an affair with mrs brody so he has to oh yeah but also yeah chief whatever is Chief Brody is the only one that survives in the book. And I think you see the beginning of Spielberg's very smart populist touch and having Dreyfus survive in this movie because the movie just feels a lot better if Dreyfus... Feels a lot happier. A lot Mm -hmm. happier, yeah. I think maybe this movie wouldn't be as well remembered if Dreyfus didn't survive. It really does just make it a happier movie. Mm -hmm. Quint, in his own way, is the primordial antithesis to to jaws right he is the he's the he is ahab he is the he is it is man versus shark and they're both gonna die yeah like they're both gonna kill each other neither can live while the other remains <laughs> yeah survives the, or but, the, but the little. movie doesn't give him the dignity of striking the killing blow which is the other thing you could do with quint is have him yeah yeah jam that harpoon into jaws and die in the process yeah it, it feels more like there's some ambivalence like, well, Quint's awesome. Also, he's like self-destructive. Like Quint. And he, Quint, had, a, Quint, he had it coming. He's actually the one that didn't respect the shark. He thought he was better and yeah. he learned otherwise. Like the shark was better. Or in, so, or in some ways, he knew this had to be his end or he just wanted to be eaten. I, this just, it, just, it just makes him ambiguous enough because mm-hmm. it, like, it makes him really likable and yeah. then it makes him unlikable again. It makes you be like, why, are you, why do you have to be... Such an idiot, such mm-hmm. a... Why did you take out the radio? Why did you take out the radio? Why did you blow up your own engine? Like, why did you... Yeah. Why didn't you just... Why? Mm-hmm. Well, you had it coming. Right. Yeah. Which is, this is a really interesting you choice. You had it come. Roy Scheider played in All That Jazz, a uh, Bob Fosse movie, Bob Fosse being mm-hmm. the author of Chicago. Yes. Those are some mental associations. And now you can have them, folks. You're welcome. Hey, do, do you want to hear this guy, Peter, Peter Mundus... The guy that Quint's based yeah, on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, he was asked what he thought about Jaws. Here, I'm just going to read these two. What did you think about the movie Jaws? It was the funniest and the stupidest movie I've ever seen because too many stupid things happened in it. I don't you have to say it was the funniest and stupidest. Uh... Uh, for instance, no shark can pull a boat backwards at a fast speed with a light line and stern cleats that are only held in there by two bolts. <laughs> and I've never boiled shark jaws. If you do, you'll only end up with a bunch of teeth at the bottom of your bucket because the jaw cartilage melts. <laughs> Is it true that the shark hunter Quint in Jaws is based on you? In what ways does he resemble you? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good voice for that. <laughs> right. Yes, he was. 
he knew how to handle the people the same way I did. He also, <laughs> <laughs> he, he also used similar shark fishing techniques based on my methods. <laughs> the one thing this guy wants to own is Quint's people skills. That's amazing. <laughs> the only difference was that I used handheld harpoons after field testing harpoon guns and discovering that they didn't work. The dart would pull out after hitting the fish. All right. That's amazing. So, yeah. <laughs> he knows how to handle people just like I do. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? That's amazing. Yeah, I'm so glad you found that. Uh, he knows how to handle people, so he goes to a town hall meeting, <laughs> scratches his fingernails on a board. What an amazing character introduction. And then his mouth is full, passive-aggressively. He's eating a biscuit or something as he uh, talks to <laughs> Everybody. He takes a bite before he says his first word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you all know me. You know how I earn a living. I'll catch the bird for you, but it ain't going to be easy. Bad fish. Not like going down to the pond chasing bluegills or tommy cats. The shark no will swallow kidding. you whole. Yeah, that... Sh- shaking, tenderizing. Down you go. <laughs> yeah, a little over the top. No, I love it. Little, uh, I, a little much. Uh, I love it. I mean, it is the place where the movie, it's done so much other work to ease you into the mythology. But with Quint, it's just like, yeah, we're we're telling a fish story and we need. I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. Yeah. It, it is wise to introduce him a little bit and then have him disappear for a while. It's, you can't, you couldn't have too much Quint too fast, I think. But have him make a splash. No pun intended. And then. I think that one was intended. It really wasn't. I would never intend such a pun, but yeah, let's see what happens next. So Brody starts studying sharks. I think if you want to talk about just elegant mythologizing, having Brody just look at those picture books and showing all those pictures of Mm -hmm. real sharks and stuff does so much to build up who Jaws is in your mind. Yeah. And then, you know, mom happens to flip to the picture of the shark attacking the boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not in the water. He's in the boat. Right. <laughs> you give. You hurt your father. That's great. And I love the Spielberg obvious symbolism of the the images being reflected on his glasses, as if they're like entering into his brain and mm-hmm. his psyche, kind of. Yeah. And we're cutting between that with this kind of ridiculous scene, but I love it of the fisherman on the dock. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's. Probably the silliest. We're showing the shark without showing it while we have the dock. Uh, right. But then it's a wonderful moment when the dock turns around. And <laughs> you do just have Spielberg's showmanship there. Like, uh, how do we contrive to have another exciting moment in this movie? Well, let's have this completely narratively re- relatively pointless scene. But it, it adds just the right little jolt mm-hmm. of excitement and keeps Jaws alive in our minds and in our, in our hearts. And then we introduce Hooper, the hippie nerd dude, the nerd Jew rock star, kind of proto Ian Malcolm, since I'm comparing everything to Jurassic Park. Spielberg likes to have the cool, witty, hip Jewish character who shows up and knows better than everybody and sounds like uh, we've already we've already decided we're Hooper fans. I thought that was going to be controversial. I thought we were going to s- have to talk through the fact that we usually hate Dreyfus and he's annoying and all this kind of thing. But what's, what's the second best Richard Dreyfus performance? Ooh, 
I've seen What About Bob a long time ago. Well, What About Bob is interesting because he's playing an annoying antagonist to Bill right. Murray just annoys the whole movie. And so... <laughs> Yep. That's what I remember. It's just like Richard Dreyfus is unlikable, but he's supposed to be. That's right. Haven't seen it, won't see it. He's good playing a kid in American Graffiti. Never seen that. Uh, I don't know. What is the best Dreyfus movie? Second best Dreyfus movie. When are we going to do What About Bob for the podcast? <laughs> as soon as Patreon <laughs> gets us up to $5,000. Yeah. $5, $5, Whoa. <laughs> what if Patreon just started going... <laughs> Jake <laughs> <laughs> would have to watch it. Oh, no, great. won't do it. Uh, not yeah, gonna the do good, it. The goodbye girl. Well, he's You'll good. do it. I mean, he, he is good in Close Encounters. He does what's asked of him well in that movie. It's yeah. true. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like what Spielberg asked him to do in that movie, but I think he does it well. Has he? Dick Cheney. Oh, that's right. What did he play that in? Was that? W. W. Mm. W. W. I never saw it. All right, we have all the shark hint hunters go out. We've got we get some pretty uh, grisly footage of real dead sharks. If you're not into that thing, we've got Mrs. Kittner showing up as American Gothic, slapping Hooth, Hooper, all that stuff. That scene, I, I do remember that scene always kind of hitting me as a kid. It's just it just kind of taps into that kid feeling of. Uh, you know, my brother committed the crime, but I'm the one getting the spanking kind of thing. Or, or you know, somebody passed me a note in school, but then the teacher saw me take it. So I'm the one getting sent to the principal. Like, Chief Brody doesn't deserve Mrs. Kittner's disdain. He tried to shut the speech down. But he feels like he did. So yeah. he just takes it. He just takes it. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that Roy Scheider's so good at. He's just got that natural kind of melancholy. Mm -hmm. And then we have, we've already kind of talked about it, but we have the beautiful little scene of his home life with the kid mm -hmm. making faces and he asks the son to give him a kiss because he needs it and all this stuff and and that's what spielberg really shines at for all his fame as a pop special effects dude even as early as this finding those little human moments of sweetness or pathos and just filming them in a way that everybody can kind of connect to and relate to it, the, the little human moments are why spielberg became the the premier pop popcorn filmmaker not just because he was good at the popcorn stuff uh, and then we have the ben gardner boat scene where they find the corpse we've got the second attack with the pg rated bloody leg stump mm -hmm. and i don't know anything else you guys want to talk about before we join our heroes on the water i don't think so uh, i guess i said a lot of everything i wanted to say about the I mean, there's the it, it is sort of two different movies. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is the before we got on the boat, and then the we're on the boat. Yeah, it's, it's certainly one of those things where when people remember Jaws and think about Jaws, what they're thinking about is the boat stuff. Yeah, they're probably thinking about uh, Chrissy's last swim and the boat stuff. I mean, those are the two things that you really think of when you're when you think of Jaws, but. The boat stuff actually doesn't occupy that much real estate in the movie. It occupies a lot. It's probably a good 40 minutes or something like that, but it's not an hour and a half, which is how your brain kind of remembers it or mine did before rewatching the movie. Yeah, you got the boat stuff and you got John Williams doing John Williams like rousing adventure mm -hmm. da, 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 kind of right. music as they 
shoot those barrels and that's just Spielberg. I think that's the part where Spielberg probably would have shown more shark and d- done, mm-hmm. but he had to find ways to keep the shark in our minds without, so you got the, the barrels and all that stuff. And then barrels is a good use of something that's been there the whole movie. Yeah. It is now mundane object that has become terrifying. Yeah. It's, it's great. Well, and especially when they are singing uh, the show me the way to go home and then you see the barrel come at the ship. That's terrifying. Uh, so what is there to say about the scar scene and the Indianapolis scene? I mean, they're wonderful. I don't, I don't know. It's the heart of the movie. It's the heart of the movie. And it does. I think one of the scariest scenes in the movie is weirdly him telling that or movie, not weirdly him telling that story. It is just, it just lives in your mind and in your imagination in a way that you you take it away from the movie and it lives with you. Well, it's the most psychologically terrifying thing because he just evokes the idea that you're stranded out at sea. Nobody knows. No distress signal was sent. And the sharks and you're banded together and the sharks are picking people off one by one. Mm. And you see your buddy and you go to wake him up and realize he's, he's bobbing like a top. Yeah, he's been bitten in half. Mm-hmm. And then the most scary part, and this is, I think, the stroke of genius of the speech. The the, 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 the scariest part was were those minutes waiting. Waiting for your turn, yeah. Waiting for your turn. Because the sharks were still there picking people off. And am I going to get this close and not actually make it? Before, before there was rescue, it was we're all dead and it's a matter of time. Right. And now there's hope. And it's just in front of me. Yeah. But it could be snatched away yeah it could be yeah. snatched away from me at any second and there's nothing anybody here can do about it well in that description of black eyes doll's eyes but but right before he bites you they turn like over buttons. and yep. white yeah that's right it's, it's awesome it's just yeah, like it's amazing that does so much when jaws finally shows up because i've always kind of thought the the hydraulic jaws is great but you can kind of see the hinges on the mount like there's things about that the monster that they built that shouldn't work even as well filmed as they are but jaws is such a terrifying presence in your mind by that time mm-hmm. that it just does it does work matter at all yeah but yeah that speech is genius and the story of that speech is that they had a little three quarters of a page monologue written by the screenwriter and spielberg on the last minute thought this has to be something really special so he sent it to his friend john milius who's famous for conan the barbarian for writing Magnum Force, for writing the Dirty Harry speech, the Do You Feel Lucky speech. So Milius is just like a man's man, one of the movie brat, weird hippie generation, but but a conservative and just loved guns and warfare and knew how to write for Dirty Harry and for Conan the Barbarian and stuff like that. So you need Quint to give a speech. You give it to Milius, who is Spielberg's friend. Milius wrote a really good version, introduced a lot of the stuff. And then Robert Shaw himself, who plays Quint, was also a playwright and Shaw did a pass. And so at the very last minute, they come up with this fantastic speech and, you know, Shaw nails it. And it just becomes, as Jake said, the heart of the movie. Also just the drinking wine and the scar scene like you said like somebody said i'll never put on another life preserver yeah yeah there's just everything about that farewell and adieu show me the way to go home yeah yeah and and leading into it with the scars with the understatement of robert shaw not wanting to show his scar 
or not Robert Shaw, Chief Brody, whatever Roy his name Scheider. is, Roy Scheider. And Roy Scheider being such a great audience avatar in that moment too. It's like you, you kind of have the feeling of, I mean, I think we've all been there where the, the two guys have drunk a little bit more than us and they're having a really fun conversation. And I'm just like, well, I could enter into this, but but I'm not going to, or I don't well, want and, to. And every person in the audience is like, well, what would I say if I were there? Would I have scars to show? Which scars would I show? Mm-hmm. Definitely haven't been bitten by a shark before. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess there's this scar on my arm from playing baseball. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> well, and then Dreyfus does us a big favor by by saying, uh, you know. His, his heart. Mary Ellen Moffat. She broke my heart. And then laughing absurdly. And then laughing absurdly. And it's nice that Robert Shaw, you know, his character actually thinks that's funny. It's just a great scene. Really, really well played. I read a couple of things about that. Oh, the Indianapolis, yeah. Right. So what I found, Wikipedia included, makes it sound like there weren't as many guys killed by sharks as the speech makes it sound Mm -hmm. like. Well, they were stranded because I read about this a little bit too. They yeah. were stranded without help, and That's right. the mission was so secret. Like a lot of the details, you know, yeah, it was it was terrible. A lot of them were wounded. I mean, they just the ship had just exploded, and, and they sunk. did find that a lot of people were killed by sharks. It just yes. it just wasn't experientially quite like, oh it, no, I'm being surrounded. Right, by it, it. he made it sound like like ev- all the men had the same. Like it, uh, some survivors never saw a shark. For instance, right. estimate Wikipedia says, again, I just have to preface this, a dozen to 150 men killed by sharks. 150 is still a lot. 150 is still a lot. And maybe it was more. I don't, I, I didn't go deep in researching this, but just interesting. Well, I also think even if it wasn't everybody's experience, if it was some people's experience, I mean, if, if, if one person had Robert Shaw's experience. It's, credi- then, it's credibly Quinn's experience is yeah. what I, I just heard. Yeah. Yes. I wasn't saying it. I wasn't trying to say it wasn't. All I was trying to do was give a little more context. Right. Well, and Quint's allowed to horrible. tell a little bit of a, a fish story too. Like, you know, of course he's exaggerating. And by the way, the fact that that speech ends with, anyway, we delivered the bomb. Yeah. That's a, yeah. that's a, perfect last line for that speech <laughs> yeah. yeah that's super creepy <laughs> yeah uh, it's great yeah uh, yeah well not to make too much of it but as, as three icons of 20th century manhood as three types you just couldn't do better than than those guys you have kind of actually chief brody feels the most like a greatest generation guy even mm-hmm. though he's not clearly too young to have been in world war uh two but Strong, he, silent. Type. Yeah, he's strong, silent. He doesn't wear his emotions on his sleeve. He kind of keeps his own counsel. He's he's not worried about his authority that much. I mean, he has his own neuroses and things, but it's like... But he successfully managed to have his son's hearts. Yeah, yeah. He just feels like that kind of guy. Uh, and then you have, like Jake said, <laughs> Quintus, like out of the 19th century or so, <laughs> something yeah. like that. Yeah. Just this big, larger-than-life kind of... Guy, and then you have Hooper, who is the, you know, the nerd that, that would inherit the earth, you know, kind of the real 20th century or 21st century prototype of, of mass masculinity. And uh, Spielberg sides with the nerd and, and with the strong silent type and sides against the Victorian for whatever reason. It's not just the nerd. He's the nerd with daddy's money. Nerd with daddy's money. Yeah. I mean, obviously Spielberg. How does this get to be your life? I'm rich. Where'd the money come from? Which part of the family are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> or whatever he is, he says, I forget. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Which is just so fascinating. I mean, I just, I don't think you'd write any of these characters quite the same way. A, one of them would be a woman. Probably Dreyfus would be a woman if you wrote the movie now. I think mm-hmm. that, that'd be the obvious place to put a woman because you want a woman on that boat. You don't want to mm-hmm. just let it be a, a boy's adventure, which would be stupid because the fact that it's a boy's adventure is one of the charms of the film. And the male bonding aspect of it is yeah. is, is what makes some of those scenes so great. They, they do just evoke the feeling of, for Christians, you know, being on a men's retreat or something. Those late night conversations that you have a couple times in your life with, with other men where you're mm-hmm. able to bear your souls, even as manly men like these guys are, you're able to bear your souls in a way that you can't in other places. Yeah. It's late and there's wine and there's, you know, the, the gentle lulling of the sea. All right, well, that leads us pretty much straight into the final beats of the movie. The shark starts ramming the boat. I just want to... Yeah. This movie is way better having read Moby Dick. Yes. I'm just saying. Yeah. If anybody wants to experience mm. this movie again, you can read Moby Dick. And I want to read e- it. Even the fact that we get a, a crow's nest scene mm-hmm. when they first get on the boat and we get to look down onto the water from the crow's nest... There's a whole chapter about called The Masthead mm-hmm. in Moby Dick. One of the best chapters. Yeah. Super evocative mm-hmm. and really cool. And it just brings that much more richness to the experience of watching the movie. What Melville says is, imagine walking on stilts across the ocean or, or gliding almost like you're flying. He says that's the experience of... And then he does like a whole thing that I won't try to capture. But he's very evocative about what it would be like to be on the mast. Well, even things we like... get a couple of shots of of being up in the crow's nest on the orca early on. And it's just, it's cool. Even things like uh, Hooper or not Hooper Brody being scared to go out onto whatever it's called, the little front of the boat Mm -hmm. that hangs over the prow. prow. You just reading Moby Dick puts you in touch with all those kinds of jobs and locations on a ship and how it would feel to actually be out there and how much more, tremulous your position would be if you were out there is it's just uh, i would say moby dick makes jaws better i would say jaws makes moby dick better actually because jaws reminds you that moby dick isn't just some literary artifact it's actually a story about primordial terror which jaws captures pretty well for us but moby dick unfortunately is one of those books that has just been ruined by by school and by the the bad expectations that we bring to it but yes, agreed 100%. So I think we've pretty much litigated why Quint deserved to die. We agree that it was the right choice. Yeah, I could see a version where Quint didn't die, but it doesn't feel wrong that he did. It, I, think I, don't think, I don't think that Quint, I don't think there's a right version where Quint doesn't come away at least seriously maimed. Yeah. Like he loses a leg or both mm-hmm. of his legs or something. He's on He's, a vengeance quest, and if you're going to fulfill a vengeance quest you have to sacrifice or there has lose to be a sacrifice. something yeah yep i don't think it was wrong for him to die and if anybody was going to die he was the right choice i think the only other solution yeah is he he loses a limb or two yep mm-hmm. yeah i mean it makes sense we've already told the story of unsuspecting normal people falling prey to this primordial terror you know, that's the kittner boy that's that it would just be doing that again if you had Brody or Hooper die. Right. But for Quint to die, it's like, well, of course, Ahab's going to go down with his whale. Of course, you know, the mythological monster fighter is going to be the one that fights the monster, that goes down with the monster. I mean, it does 
cast a little bit of a pall over the end of the movie. I would say it is so grim and violent in a different way. And it and we spent a lot of time with him gurgling blood. Gurgling blood. Yeah, it's yeah. Off, It's horrible. I mean, it's appropriately like this guy's death needs to be spectacular, and and it is. And and it's it's fun to watch him watch how long he puts up a struggle you know kicking himself away from the shark and then stabbing it and stuff like you you wouldn't want quint to just slide into the shark's mouth and be dragged away without a fight that'd be lame you need him in the book i think he actually it's actually more of a moby dick rip i i think he jumps and gets a harpoon into jaws and then jaws just carries him under which which you could argue might actually be be better but that's 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 where that's maybe why I ask these questions because it does feel just a little vindictive or just a little anti-Quint or something, the way that mm-hmm. Spielberg, like he just wants to be like, this guy thought he was all that and it turns out he's shark food and maybe don't smash the radio next time and mm-hmm. go around thinking that you're Captain Ahab if you don't want to suffer mm-hmm. a terrible fate. It is like telling us that Quint was actually the one who didn't respect the shark, like I said. Anyway. Then we get to the ridiculous finale that we've been so primed to accept that we just accept it where the shark has already eaten somebody. Which, by the way, I love that Jaws basically comes out of the ocean like a puppet, eats Quint- gets Quentin in his mouth, and then goes down like a puppet being retracted behind a stage. But the shark's presumably already eaten very well that day, but he's just coming at Brody like a train, and we get the smile etc line and then a big explosion i guess in the book they managed to wound the shark enough that the shark is coming at brody coming 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 and then the shark succumbs to its wounds like right before it can eat brody and just floats down and spielberg the showman was like nah we need something oh yeah we need something more cathartic yeah it's my favorite moment as a kid yeah it's the best yeah, well, John Williams does those great, a great little twinkling harp cue as the yeah, that's right. the viscera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like this very gentle, like Jaws <laughs> ascending into heaven or something like that. I've been puzzling over what he did. He reuse little bits of that in Star Wars, or there's something. Isn't it just a flavor touch, like that he could reuse? I think he does the same kind of glissando when. The bits the, and pieces of the of Death, the Death Star. Star, definitely. <laughs> it's like it's like things have returned to tranquility, or mm-hmm. you know, order is restored, or something. Mm-hmm. Jaws is better though because Jaws Spielberg also puts in a dying dinosaur sound that he took from an old B movie, which he had, uh. which he had used when the truck went over the cliff in Duel. There's like this sound. Hmm. And he actually lays it in very gently in Jaws. And it does give this weird, eerie kind of the monster is succumbing to the deep kind of feeling while Williams is like, yeah, everything's back to normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember marking that last the other night. Yeah. It's this weird sound that like, why is Jaws like screaming as his <laughs> his guts slowly sink? Uh, but uh Man, and then you have uh, Hooper come up. You have uh, Quint, no, which is a, a good exchange. And then they make some jokes to relieve the tension as they kick back to the water. <laughs> what day is it? <laughs> Wednesday. No, it might be 
Tuesday. Yeah. I don't know. You think the tide's with us? <laughs> Keep kicking. Keep kicking. <laughs> Using the barrels. Ah, it's great. It's a great movie. It's one of the best suspense thrillers. It really does ah, yeah, it does capture that. It does a lot of things. It's it's got it does have that boys adventure. They're like this is fun. This is cool. We're on a boat. We're hunting a monster together. We're bonding. It's got all that. It's got that feeling of potency and myth that comes from like this primordial monster is hunting us as much civilization as we've built. There's always something uncivilized lurking in the deeps that man doesn't understand. It's got all that. It's just, in many ways, a perfect movie. Ben, how many chunks of shark viscera out of 14 do you give to Jaws? Uh, maybe 13? Yeah. I don't know why I take off a little viscera. Uh, maybe, it's, a, it's, maybe an, it's an instinct. Docking at a point for some immodesty at the beginning. Yeah, gratuitous nudity. Yeah. Jake, how many chunks of shark viscera out of 14? 13 and a half. 13 and a half. Half a point for gratuitous nudity. Yeah, well, I will uh, go ahead and give it a full 14. I, I admit that it deserves to have the point that's docked, but I think you, you guys have already docked them from our cumulative, so I'll just say... It's a great movie, Jaws. And That's great. Yeah. Any other final thoughts, observations, insights, complaints, comments, anything like that, gentlemen? <clears throat> I have one question. Yes. I have one answer. What else has Roy Scheider been in that we love him for? Is there anything? Is it kind of like a Dreyfus effect? Like, we love these guys in this movie. Roy Scheider. I, I know I know stuff he's been in. I've seen a couple of his 70s cop movies, but I didn't love him for them. Yeah, he almost won an Oscar. I think he was nominated for playing Gene Hackman's sidekick in The French Connection, which is a movie beloved by many, not by me. He, I like him in that movie. Yeah, he's good. He's fine. He has a follow-up called The Seven Ups that's no fun. He's the main character. He's in a movie that we referenced earlier. All That Jazz? Yep. Yeah, which is pretty debauched because Bob Fosse was pretty debauched. Uh, Roy Schneider's quite good in it. I mean, he is a good actor. Mm -hmm. He's he's really good in Marathon Man, actually. But Marathon Man has objectionable sexual stuff. Yeah, I've never seen uh, Marathon Man because I don't watch movies with objectionable stuff. Good. Um, yeah, anything. I guess you're probably looking at his IMBD, Jake. I, anything else? I guess it's just odd because like, he looms so large in Jaws. He's great. But he... I don't know. He's just not in things that people watch a lot, except for he's French in Connection. 2004 is The Punisher. He, he is? Is in, that the Thomas Jane one? Yeah. He's in Dracula 1, 2, and 3 as... Oh, Roy. Jaws money ran out at a certain Cardinal point, Zicaros. huh? Oh, no. He's the narrator of Family Guy huh. from 2007 to 2009, it would appear. Oh, no. He narrated two episodes, one in 2007 and the other in 2009, and it made it look like he had a larger role in that for a second. Huh. All right. He was in Jaws 2, that great masterpiece. Has anybody ever seen another Jaws movie? No. The Rainmaker. Me neither. They, they really tried to make this one into a franchise, and it really didn't work at all. Sequest 2032, Captain Nathan Bridger. 1993 to 1995. Uh, yeah, yep. 2010, the year we make contact. I never saw that. 
I've heard people actually say it's pretty good. The Roy Scheider just feels like one of those seventies guys. He's he's kind of not good looking. No offense, but he's not bad looking. But he's just like only in the seventies would a scraggly, weird, kind of vaguely uncharismatic guy like this rise to stardom. He's not who you're going to cast to play Rambo or something in the eighties and. Hmm. You know, he's just, I think he's perfect in this movie. I think he's great. And I, I wish he'd had, I, I hope he had an enjoyable career. And I wish there were more things that I was interested in seeing. But all right, he just, yeah. Answered that. Answered that. I mean, Spielberg, I think in his career liked, especially when he's making a high, a high concept movie, Jurassic Park's exactly the same. He liked to not cast stars, but cast kind of interesting actors. Yep. You know, Sam Neill, I mean, what everybody from our generation knows Sam Neill as the Jurassic Park guy. You probably name a handful of other things that you've enjoyed him in or see him in, but really he's the Jurassic Park guy. Yep. Exactly the same effect. Or I mean, really, honestly, if it wasn't for Independence Day, then what's his face? Jeff Goldblum would also be the Jurassic Park guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, both of them have done other interesting things, but Spielberg, when he has a concept that is going to sell the movie, he... I think I think it's an artistic choice. He, he it's like you got Harrison Ford. Uh, Harrison Ford doesn't really work because he wouldn't have been a big star. But you get a big star and you plug him into Jaws. Everybody knows he's going to survive. You get Roy Scheider, and you don't know. You don't know. Like yeah. who is this guy? He's the hero. He's probably going to survive. But he's also he's not somebody that I I know. And I think it, for the time with Jurassic Park being Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum, that that added to yeah, some, some suspense. True. Cool. So, so yeah. All right. That's my answer to your question. Yeah, okay. So we got a cumulative like 14 and three quarters or something like that. Chunks of shark viscera. Do you know who reminds me not at all of shark viscera? Who? Well, then I'm glad you asked. Anthony. (laughs) Anthony? (laughs) Yeah. He reminds you not at all of shark viscera. Yeah. When I think of Anthony, I have never once thought of Anthony and shark viscera in in the same thought. That's cool. And until now. Until now. What else what else would you guys say is cool about Anthony and makes him worthy of to be our patron choice award of awesomeness winner? If Anthony were gonna, you know, pilot a fishing boat to kill dangerous sharks, he wouldn't be doing it for vengeance. So he wouldn't deserve to get eaten alive by what he was hunting. We've all said that about Anthony many times. <laughs> I know I have. <laughs> it's one of his, his, his key features. <laughs> it's a defining characteristic. If he was going to pilot a fishing boat to kill sharks, yeah. he wouldn't do it for revenge. He Here's a question. Which one of the three of us do you think is, was, is most likely and least likely? Rate us on a scale. Uh, which one of us is most likely and least likely and middle likely to pilot a f- fishing boat for revenge against sharks? I, I actually think the answer is pretty interesting to this one. Because I think Jake's the most likely. I do too. Oh, yeah. I, I, I thought that was <laughs> I, I, obvious. That's the most qu- obvious, yeah. Right. I may be the quint of the podcast, but you're the quint of the <laughs> piloting sharks. Yeah, he's going he's gonna to obsessively go after that shark among the three of us. If a shark it's ate, like, one of your kids or something, you'd be like, be uh, I'm not satisfied that they shut down the beach. Like, I want that shark to pay. That's right. Yep. And, and which one of us is the least likely? You. Yeah, I feel like I'm a shark pacifist. I'm sorry if that makes me effeminate <laughs> or something. And then Ben, eh, maybe he'll get revenge on sharks. Maybe not. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> it's hard <laughs> to tell. <laughs> yeah, I just kind of have a laissez-faire, quesarasera. If one of my kids gets eaten by a shark, then, you know. That's just the way it goes. That's, so it goes. Shark's going to shark, you know. 
Well, no folks. point in getting caught up in some shark vengeance tale and getting myself killed in the process. Oh, but by the way, I, I just thought of, uh, yeah, you, do, you don't want to get caught up in a shark tale. You don't want to be slapped by Will Smith and you don't want to see Will Smith's shark tale. But those are both bad things that Will Smith can inflict uh, on I've you. Been inf- inflicted, had them both inflicted on me. You've been slapped by Will Smith? <laughs> yeah, I've watched Chris Rock be slapped enough times yeah. that it feels like it. I mean, really, watching Men in Black 2 is kind of like <laughs> being slapped by Will Smith. Uh, Men in Black 3, though. Guys, we did, we know, I, I just. Men in Black 3 is pretty fun. Yeah, Men in Black 3 is all right. But Men in Black 1 is the only Men in Black International? No Will Smith even to get slapped by. Uh. We're on record as liking that movie. Our podcast is actually about how we like that movie. Yeah. I don't remember a thing about that movie, but I think we kind of liked it at the time. Remember anything about that movie except, uh. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm against us as well, but I think we liked it. We were wrong. Yeah. Probably the first and only time in history. Yeah, it's the only time. I, I can confirm. I've checked. I've looked into all the other things that we've said, and they've all been right, uh, including Dune. Including Dune. What a waste especially of, Dune. Especially Dune. Yeah, we were very right about that. Uh, in fact, any time that we like something that other, or that we dislike something that other people like, we've been 100% correct. We never, uh, I just thought of this because I'm about to go to Jake for a line. We didn't talk about, you're going to need a bigger boat, which is a really famous line that this movie has that's made its way into popular culture and everybody knows it and says it and like you know it's like oh we they always turn it into we though yeah but it is you i did want to say watching the documentary this is my last thought and then we'll we'll be done but spielberg you just have to say that this guy is responsible for some of the vulgarization of our culture because those movies always feature blasphemy and they always feature the s word a lot and I've always kind of thought that about Spielberg's movies because all the ambulant entertainment is like that. It gets a lot of cachet out of its its swearing. But he actually admits it in the documentary on Jaws. He talks about how uh, Roy Scheider says the S word as he's, you know, like you come and chum this stuff as he's right, right before Jaws comes out mm-hmm. for the big jump scare. And Spielberg talks about how in that era, that word was considered risque enough that the audience laughed. And he actually worked it into the design of the movie so that they start to laugh because this guy just said the S word. And then Jaws comes out and the laugh turns into a scream. So it was actually engineered for the emotional response. And I just thought that it was interesting that part of that engineering was actually putting that particular word in there because it was so provocative for people. So anytime Spielberg assaults us with his bad language, don't let him off the hook. He knows exactly what he's doing and the kind of effect he's getting out of it. And oftentimes he's playing it for comedy. And I think he's playing the blasphemy for blasphemy. I think it's one of the, the I like Steven Spielberg. I don't think we shouldn't watch his movies or anything, but I think it is one of the, the worst legacies of the 80s Amblin entertainment is the casual use of Jesus's name in particular. Anyway, that's a nice happy thought to end things on. Until next time. Farewell and adieu to you, fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu to you, ladies of Spain. Bye, Spanish ladies. Thanks for listening. 